and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Agent Smith. Smith, Smith. It is December the 13th, and the world rages on with its usual shenanigans. How are you doing, Mr. Agent Smith? I'm doing all right. How are you? Pretty solid. Had a good weekend. Pretty happy with how the raids and stuff went. And um, enjoying just being on the grind and streaming leading up to the holidays. That sounds good. Well, was there anything that you wanted to jump at first here? Well, just to kind of get it out of the way, there were a bunch of lawsuits and stuff <laughs> um, about the legitimacy of the election and so on. And we discussed this a little bit before, but apparently one of them made its way up to the Supreme Court or something, and I think it was eventually dismissed. But we had discussed in the past the just importance of democracy and having a good voting system where votes are counted and people are very careful about making sure all that's correct and making sure there's oversight and that kind of thing. And because Trump went into this election sort of assuming that there was going to be mass fraud, it got people more paranoid than I think we've been in other elections. I don't really remember in any previous elections that I took part in where people were really worried about stuff going awry. It's healthy to be cautious and to yeah. make sure that you do it right. But have we had other elections where there was serious doubt cast upon it? Serious, broad-based public doubt? I don't think in any, I don't think in living memory, you know. I'm sure you could find some historical examples, and I've read in passing more recently that there was strong evidence that came out later of fraud in uh, the election that JFK won back in the day. But I don't think the public really knew about that because I don't remember there being a big outcry about it. So no, I don't, I think this is the first time we've seen this in uh, this, in this kind of doubt and living memory in a very long time. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, there are kind of two schools of thought on that. One, you know, is that uh, there has been doubts about uh, the validity of uh, laws around mail-in voting and uh, voter ID laws and whatnot. You know, the Republican Party in particular over the past 10 years has uh, hit on that as an important issue. Uh, I don't remember them really doing it before 2010. I don't remember it being like a big issue, but since 2010, roughly speaking, there's been a much more there's been much more of a focus on voter ID laws and whatnot by the Republican Party, uh, whom justifies that in terms of uh, electoral fraud and uh, securing elections, etc. So you could see then Trump's complaints about. Uh, whether or not the election was fraudulent as being sort of the continuation of that, you know, mm -hmm. basically just uh, using that pre-existing concern and building on it. Uh, on the other hand, you could say, you know, the other school of thought is more on the Democrat side, which is that uh, Trump is just trying to uh, whip up his base and get people excited uh, so that he can either find a way to change the result of the election through the courts uh, or so that he can just maintain political relevancy after he is gone. Mm -hmm. So which school of thought you fall into kind of depends on, you know, 
personal opinion and personal perspective. You know, our bag here isn't really telling people what to believe. So we tend to try to focus on what's happening and, you know, leave the, leave it to the individual listeners to kind of come to their own conclusions. But I think regardless of what one thinks uh, of the two schools of thought that I outlined, there's a kind of a separate question about whether or not there was genuine fraud in the U.S. election. And, you know, I think it's, you know, everyone's been talking about it and it's been pretty well reviewed by most parties. And from the evidence that I've seen, you know, I personally, it doesn't seem like the accusations are substantive. Uh, I could be wrong. And I would grant that there are certain areas of the U.S. electoral system where it's almost impossible to 100% prove that there was zero fraud, you know, uh, just in the, just the way that uh, ballots are handled, it is hypothetically possible that you could add them somewhere in the chain of custody, you know, add fake ballots or, you know, whatever. Um, but I haven't really heard any substantive evidence to that effect. And um, there's also, you know, how do I put this? There's the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure most of our listeners are, you know, Westerners who are familiar with the analogy. But for those of you who may not be familiar with that, there's a story. I don't remember what the origins of it were, basically. But there was, you know, a boy whose job was it was to alert the town if there was a wolf attacking the uh, sheep. And he alerted the town several times when there wasn't anything to alert the town about. You know, they were basically just fake alerts. And then eventually the wolf did show up and he alerted the town, but nobody came because they just assumed he was lying. So there's a little bit of that element here. There's been so many issues over the Trump presidency where he's exaggerated things uh, politically for either self-interest or, you know, for whatever reason. And it's at the point now where I think a lot of observers, including myself, tend to take a lot of his uh, more bombastic claims with a grain of salt. So I grant that it's possible that there was fraud, but, you know, hearing Donald Trump make a big issue out of this uh, or really, you know, go out of his way to make an issue out of anything, my first instinct is to assume that he's just doing it for theater. And again, that's just predicated on his actions over the past four years or even five years going back to when he was running. I would say there's also a factor here of just it's not fun to lose on a human level. And then for president, most presidents who get elected get a second term. So it's pretty rare to be a one-term president rather mm. than the norm. So there's probably some embarrassment and like, it's not, it's not cool to lose, not as cool. So do I want to admit losing and lose gracefully and have that kind of be the legacy of leading and then not being reelected, but taking it well and supporting the next candidate or uh, not admitting that you lost and giving some set of reasons why it was unfair and letting that be sort of the final note in your presidency. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is ego. That also is a factor. You know, God knows American politics has plenty of egos in it. So, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. And I've read there's been some leaks kind of to that effect. But, you know, the trouble with leaks is that you can't really prove them. You know? So it's mm -hmm. I don't uh, 
I try not to invest too much in those, especially where they regard things like personality or ego, because that could be uh, artificial or not. But in general, I would agree with you. Yeah, definitely. There could be an ego issue at play here. And, you know, given the size of the ego in question, that I don't think would be all that surprising. But yeah, I mean, uh, beyond whether or not the election itself is in question or what have you, I just think that uh, there's not really any way you can prove it. You know, I already said that you can't disprove the idea that there was fraud with 100% certainty, just because there are just inherently gaps in the chain of custody. You know, there is just a certain element of trust that, was, that is required uh, in order for the system to function. But in the same vein, it's also, I think, very difficult to prove that there was fraud given the evidence that we have right now. And uh, that being the case, I think regardless of whether you think that there was fraud or was not fraud, I don't think we can predict that there's going to be a change in the outcome of the election as it stands right now. Uh, I don't think the Electoral College meets until, actually, I think it meets tomorrow. Yeah, the 14th, if I'm not mistaken. So once the Electoral College votes, then... Uh, it's pretty well set in stone. I think the Trump administration was making some noise about uh, some states challenging uh, the Electoral College's decision even after the fact, but I don't think, I haven't read anything about any precedent uh, for what that would look like. And so that, uh, you know, maybe there is, and I just don't know about it, but uh, I don't think that that's going to work. And I'm pretty I'm pretty skeptical that would be an effective strategy at this point. I haven't heard of any legal mechanism by which you could challenge an electoral college vote that is not uh, that was not contested before the fact or during. So technically, the administration has not given up, but I think technically, as of tomorrow, uh, they're going to be basically out of substantive options. Doesn't mean they won't stop trying. And they may mm -hmm. well stop. They may well keep trying right up until uh, the handover and uh, whenever it is, January or February. I always forget when the inauguration is. So that's a thing. We'll watch and see what happens, but it'll probably be transition of power as usual. Yeah, that's kind of my expectation at this point. I'm not too worried about it. Of course, I said the same thing about COVID, so maybe that doesn't mean much. Yeah, I think a lot of people said that when it came to Trump winning the first time. They're like, yeah. oh man, that's so silly. Imagine if that happened. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but then it happened. Yeah, expect the unexpected. That is one of the consistent factors in the universe. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of touch on here? Anything else that uh, caught your eye, as it were? Mm, I don't think so. I did tell people before we started that if you want to hear about Brexit, then they can check the previous episode to this one, where you did basically a 
catching up with all the stuff that's gone and what the forward steps will be. Mm. But aside from that, I just saw some random headlines here or there. Taiwan is going to try some U.S. defense against cyber attacks and that kind of thing. And then just the usual hubbub of Trump said this, Trump said that, which, yeah, we've heard that before. Yeah, it's kind of white noise at this point. Mm. Yeah, the Brexit negotiations are going to go down to the wire, it looks like. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, was saying that uh, it's extremely likely there's going to be no deal. And then he agreed to an extension to the talks. So <laughs> make of that what you will. Yeah, it's uh, the EU said, we talked about this last time, but the EU said uh, that they could sign a deal, that they don't have to ratify the deal through EU parliament or you know anything really big or official that would take a long time. They could just have a guy in the uh, EU commission just sign the paperwork and it would be done. So that could be done very quickly, which means that they could delay, they could continue the talks right up until the end of December. So there could be a lot of posturing uh, right up to the end of the month here. I still pretty strongly suspect there's going to be a deal. It may be a very weak deal, but I would be pretty surprised if there was no deal in spite of the uh, protestations by London. Weak deal would mean that it's a sort of semi-Brexit where they're having... Oh, it's going to be a hard Brexit for sure, regardless. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a a weak deal would be one where there's relatively minimal access to the single market. That is to say, the United Kingdom would have access to the single market. There would be uh, low or even zero tariffs and no quotas, but... Uh, there would be a lot of terms and conditions that uh, caveated the access, that conditioned and mitigated the access. Uh, things like non-tariff barriers would not really be part of the deal in that case. Mm-hmm. And that could well be uh, the case. I, I don't think it'll be that bad. I think there will be some agreement on non-tariff barriers to trade, but it's not clear just to the extent to which they're willing to go. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the new thing that I read the past week which I hadn't been aware of before, is uh, this idea of a ratchet clause. Uh, you know, they've apparently already pretty much agreed to non-regression clauses, which mean that uh, the standards, so to speak, you know, the regulatory standards in terms of labor laws and uh, environmental laws, those will not be weakened going forward. Uh, so there's pretty much agreement on that from what I've read, but the disagreement there is some disagreement about a ratchet clause, which would involve uh, basically an agreement before the fact that if both parties, both the European Union uh, and the United Kingdom, tightened uh, their regulations, be they labor, environmental, or otherwise, if they both did that, then the, then the new regulatory status quo would become the baseline for the non-regression clauses. Uh, And so to kind of simplify that further, if the European Union and the United Kingdom agreed to the ratchet clause, uh, then if both parties tightened any kind of regulation, then neither of them would be able to weaken that regulation without violating the non-regression clause and in turn inviting some kind of retaliatory tariffs or other remedial measures. 
So that's kind of where the disagreement is at this point. You know, the United Kingdom doesn't want to uh, have the prospect of weakening regulations be blocked off. Uh, obviously, agreeing to the non-regression clause means they've kind of agreed to that already. But uh, in future, if they tighten regulations, they still want to be able to weaken them again, rather than having the, the baseline be raised every time they increase regulations. So there's some aversion to that on the part of London, I think. I suspect, though, that the European Union would probably be willing to uh, give some ground on that, because I think, uh, you know, the big thing was whether or not there would be customs checks. That was kind of the big thing I was watching when I was tracking Brexit, when I've, as I've been tracking Brexit. And uh, since there are going to be customs checks, uh, you know, that's inevitable regardless. Uh, I think uh, given that fact, then everything else is just kind of details. Yeah, I think even the issue of state aid is uh, getting pretty close to getting addressed. The European Union has kind of been signaling that uh, they would be willing to do an, basically a non-regression clause in terms of state aid. So that kind of moves them away from their previous position, which is that they wanted dynamic alignment. You know, they wanted the UK to adhere to whatever the European Union state aid regulations were, regardless of how they changed them. So. They've backed off of that. So that's a significant barrier out of the way of a deal right there. Fishing is a, still a problem, but I think nobody cares about that really. I think that's, I was looking at the uh, Brexit Reddit page, Brexit subreddit page, just because I was curious to see if I could find some details about the talks that I was missing out on. And, uh, I was a little disappointed to find that most of the posts there were just jokes about the fact that they were negotiating about fishing rights. <laughs> Humorous, but expecting yeah. to learn legit tips and tricks <laughs> on what's happening in Reddit, and it's just memes and shit posts. Welcome to the internet, sir. Yeah, yeah, really. So I don't really, I'm not worried about fishing. I don't think that's going to be a big deal one way or the other. Uh, I think there was a significant concession. Uh, what was that? That was the Irish border. Yeah, actually, we were talking about that last week. We were talking about the uh, internal market bill that the UK passed. And uh, I was talking how that, you know, I mean, just to kind of briefly review the market bill uh, would have allowed the British government to uh, violate some of the Irish backstop agreements tenants. Uh, if the agreement were to be implemented. Obviously, that would have been conditional uh, on a, a no-deal scenario or something akin to it. So there was a lot of pushback on that. And you know, like I was saying last week, I wasn't really sure why the British government was passing the internal market bill. But uh, in the past week, uh, it seems that they were doing that to get some leverage on some side talks that I didn't even know were happening. Uh, apparently, the European Union and the British government were negotiating some changes uh, to the Irish backstop agreement that would have uh, basically technical stuff. I don't have all the details right now, but that was kind of a surprise agreement that popped up this past week. You know, they did agree to adjust some of the specifics of the Irish backstop deal. And uh, so that led to the British government actually not withdrawing. Uh, the internal market bill, but they removed the clauses that had to do with the Irish backstop agreement, which is something that the European Union had been wanting them to do. So it seems like they were just looking for 
some relief in terms of some of the aspects of the uh, Irish backstop agreement they didn't like. So mystery solved, it would seem, in that, on that count. I don't think there's been too much else going on other than that. Oh, well, I guess there's all the, um, there's the post-Brexit drama. <laughs> there's all this agitation over the fact that London, you know, just part of Britain's negotiating strategy is to try to highlight the fact that they're not afraid of a no-deal scenario. They're not afraid of walking away from the talks and just reverting to WTO trade rules. So they go out of their way to message very strongly that, you know, we're not afraid of this. Uh, you know, the talks are stalling, they're failing. We're going to walk away, you know, all this kind of thing, just to kind of try to drive home their alleged leverage vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. You know, in truth, they don't really have much leverage because the European Union is just the bigger partner. You know, they have the bigger market. So the UK really has to make up for the lack of leverage by making a lot of noise, which uh, a strategy we've talked about before, generally in terms of North Korea, <laughs> a strategy now adopted by London. So they're trying to make a lot of noise to puff themselves up, to make themselves look bigger. And uh, one of the downsides to that strategy is that uh, British industry is just constantly afflicted with anxiety because they don't know uh, what's going to happen. You know, they really don't want a no deal in British industry, you know, just British corporations, firms, etc. The business community is relatively averse to that. I'm sure you can find pockets of it that don't really care or that would be for it. But in general, the broader part of the uh, British commercial sector is very much opposed to no, no deal. So all of this talk about no, no deal is, you know, very, very much cause for concern for them. And there have been any number of, you know, chamber, the Chamber of Commerce over there and all these other institutions that speak for business have been very vocal in their agitation on this count. So one of the things that's uh, one of the more tangible outcomes of that responses to this uncertainty uh, and drama has been that there's a big pileup in British ports. Uh, obviously, there's a Christmas rush, so there's a lot of goods coming in, but there's also uh, consternation about uncertainty about whether or not there's going to be a return to WTO rules. And so a lot of firms are stocking up uh, their inventory ahead of uh, the end of December because they're worried about whether or not they'll be able to continue to get inputs that they need. So between Christmas rush and uh, uncertainty over Brexit, there's just a huge backlog uh, of unprocessed and unchecked goods in British ports. And the result is that there's been uh, a lot of problems in logistical chains in the United Kingdom. It's nothing too serious right now, but it's pretty noticeable. It, probably could have been avoided uh, if the British government had taken a different approach to the Brexit talks. Uh, debatable whether or not that was ever likely, just given the politics in question, but uh, it's all just sort of part of the uh, cluster fudge that is Brexit. <laughs> you know, it all, it all could have gone very differently. But... I think there's an element of patriotism there where it's kind of the yeah, we don't need you guys kind of a thing. And that energy is a very, like, exciting human energy where you feel like you can do stuff and that there was this group, the EU, that could make decisions for you and you had to pitch in your money for that. And now we get to keep our money and our business. Brah. Like, whenever you're making a pitch, that 
I think connects with people on a human level, but for probably any medium to large size company, they're making a lot of money outside the country as well, just making British goods and shipping them outside and how Brexit means that their business is just going to be worse straight up. There isn't enough demand within the British Isles themselves for them to be making the same amount of bacon. So that's going to be an ouch for them. Yeah, they're going to have less access for their exports. So that's going to be a problem. And they're also going to have issues with imports as well, you know, for industries in Britain that get a lot of imports from continental Europe. Uh, a potential no deal, especially, would be very disruptive. You know, one of the things I was reading the past week actually also had uh, was talking about some of the problems that um, the United Kingdom would have, you know, pretty much regardless of whether or not they get a deal or don't. And uh, one of the points they made is that even in terms of regulations, the United Kingdom would not get that much of a benefit. And the example they used was a, uh, I guess, a government program called REACH, which is responsible for uh, tracking and registering intellectual property for chemicals firms, if I'm not mistaken. I'm probably mistaken. This is from an Economist article for anybody who's curious. So if you want more detail than I can recall off the top of my head, uh, definitely go check that out. But, you know, from what I can remember of it anyway, uh, Reach is, has basically a database of chemicals firms and their intellectual property. And uh, because Britain is leaving the European Union, uh, they're going to have to either uh, get some kind of exemption so they can continue to be a part of that program, or they're going to have to set up their own database so that they can track all this stuff. And uh, the European Union has already said that they will not allow them to continue to participate. And as a result, the United Kingdom has announced that it's going to set up what's called uh, Reach UK, I think is what it is. And their hope apparently was that they would be able to just copy and paste, you know, almost quite literally the database that the uh, European Union has been using in their Reach program. And the European Union has apparently said that they're not going to do that. So that puts the United Kingdom in a position where they're going to have to create the database from scratch. Now, you might not think that's too much of a problem, but apparently all of the fees and paperwork that are involved and registering again are a substantive barrier uh, to the point where uh, a lot of British firms don't know whether or not they'll bother. You know, they may just cut production for certain chemicals that they would normally need to register. And that could have an impact on the chemicals industry in the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, similarly, there's a number of European chemicals firms that also don't know whether or not they would want to register in the United Kingdom. And may prefer to just uh, reduce exports or just to exit the market entirely. So that's uh, all just an example of how retaining regulatory sovereignty or rather achieving regulatory sovereignty doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be substantive negative consequences. So I think you could call that, uh, oh, what's the phrase I want? Um, unintended consequence. You know, I don't think anybody was thinking in terms of uh, the downside of regulatory sovereignty. You know, I think everybody just kind of assumed that it would be a positive of leaving the European Union, that the United Kingdom would be able to liberalize its regulatory regime, you know, maybe weaken it a little bit, make the UK economy more competitive, et cetera. But you know, the technical side, the technical problems with uh, disentangling 
the British regulatory state from the European regulatory state actually comes with its own costs. And some of those actually could turn out to be long-term costs, you know, as illustrated in the REACH example. You know, I was also reading that uh, a number of other agencies kind of like REACH, uh, for example, also have to be repli replicated by the United Kingdom. Uh, and I think one of them was, and I think we talked about this a little bit before, the common agricultural policy. So, you know, the United Kingdom, British farmers have been getting subsidies from the European Union in the form of the common agricultural policy. So the United Kingdom now has to decide whether or not they want to replicate that. You know, are we going to just cut off our farmers from these subsidies since they won't be getting them anymore from the European Union? Uh, or do we introduce subsidies ourselves so that the United, so that the British government itself is providing the subsidies so that there's some continuity there? And uh, I think the British government said no. I, I can't remember if we talked about this last week or not, but the British government has basically said that they're not going to continue the subsidies, or at least they've signaled that. What they have decided to do is to pay farmers to uh, maintain green space. And so I think that's kind of the replacement. I don't think it's going to amount to as much as the common agricultural policy subsidies. So this could be a form of uh, liberalization, you know, basically uh, reducing subsidies to try to make agricultural firms more productive, but doing it kind of secretly. <laughs> you know, uh, if they really wanted to do that uh, openly, that they could just come out and say, we're going to reduce subsidies and introduce more competition. Uh, but instead, they're saying that sort of circuitously that, no, we're not going to get rid of subsidies. We're just going to replace them. And oh, by the way, the new subsidies are substantively less than the European Union subsidies. I suspect we're going to see a lot of uh, political maneuvering like that in post-Brexit UK as the government tries to uh, make the most of it by introducing little, little forms of deregulation like that here and there where they can get away with it. It's kind of been something I've suspected for a long time about Brexit, which is that uh, the Tory, well, not even just the Tories, but specifically the pro-Brexit Tories, I always kind of suspected them of wanting Brexit principally so that they could deregulate the economy and try to make it more competitive. I kind of, that's been my long-term theory, that that was their long-term end game, that they were sort of conspiring to achieve through, through circuitous means. And uh, the closer we get to Brexit, the more evidence I see of that. I can't say definitively that that's what they're doing or going to do, but... That's sort of my uh, personal opinion. I guess. You could call this my personal opinion. I think, I suspect that's what we're going to see, a substantive attempt at deregulation in the UK after Brexit and Brexit talks are completed. But again, that's that particular bit of speculation on my part, so read into that what you will. We'll see what happens December 31st. And so Brexit rages on. <laughs> yeah. Plenty more where that came from. Well, was there anything else you wanted to touch on here? I've got uh, plenty of notes, and I've still got the China trade war thing. Actually, chat was asking about China trade war. Oh, really? And yes, there was also uh, the greatest general strike in human history with India. Well, I hadn't heard it described that way, but I guess that could be true. I think it was 250 million or something. 
I think that might have been exaggerated. I think I remember seeing that on Reddit, and it was pointed out that it wasn't actually that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, that's the farm bill. I'm gonna look because I don't want to steer you wrong here. Yeah. No, I guess that's not directly related. So I guess I would have to read about that. I just assumed it was related to the farm bill. There's this controversial new bill in India that's going to uh, liberalize uh, the market for agricultural goods. And uh, some of the more well-off farmers are very upset about that. It's uh, There's a big protest by Punjabi farmers, and they've been... They formed like this big caravan and they're marching to uh, New Delhi to try to force the government to back down and uh, either weaken or withdraw the bill. I don't think that's going to happen. But I noticed that a lot of other farmers in other parts of India haven't really been quite so vocal about it. Or if they have, I haven't noticed. So that kind of makes me wonder why it is that it's specifically the Punjabis that are upset about this. It seems also weird to me since the Punjabi farmers are generally the wealthier farmers in India. And I would think that the wealthier farmers wouldn't really care as much about something like this. You'd think it would be the poor farmers that would be more upset about uh, the prospect of potentially losing price minimums. But that doesn't seem to be the case, and I'm not really sure why. Maybe everyone's upset and they just have a better capacity to organize. That could be true, you know, more money, more organization. I could see that. It could also be that they were benefiting from the old system. The old system was called the Mandi system. And uh, the Mandi were, I think, the middlemen in the system that basically operated on behalf of the government. So it could be that the Punjabis disproportionately comprise Mandi. And in that sense, disproportionately benefited from the program. But you know, that's speculation on my part. I've been meaning to read more about it. I've got some open tabs. But I just haven't gotten to it yet. I have several thousand open tabs, so <laughs> I may not ever get to it. Yeah, things tend to back up. But yeah, I don't know about the general strike, I guess. Apparently, I mistakenly assumed that it was just... Uh, I mistakenly assumed that it was in solidarity with the farmers, uh, strikers. But briefly reviewing Wikipedia here, it seems that's not the case. So I guess I will. I guess I'll have to read more about that. Yeah, there were multiple people asking about the trade war and stuff too. Yeah, I've got a lot of trade war notes that I've been saving up. Hmm, this could take a while. <laughs> Are you sure you want to jump into this? Hell yeah, we got two questions on, it and you asked me what's going on. So uh, I would guess right. that they would be really happy. Okay. Okay, we can do that. Did you want, I had one kind of, uh, I guess, goofy story, but we can do that later or now, depending on your preference. Goofy story first. Goofy story first. Okay. I want to try to find the guy's name for you. Mm-hmm. Just to be specific, I could just whip the story out real quick, but I wouldn't have the details. This is a story from Hungary, and if you're from Hungary, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about before I even talk about it. Uh, This had to do with uh, politicians breaking COVID restrictions. So 
obviously in Europe, there's been a spike, you know, a sort of second wave in uh, COVID cases. And so there's a number of uh, countries and localities that are tightening quarantine restrictions. And generally, those quarantine restrictions include restrictions on how many people can congregate in one space. You know, you're not supposed to have uh, groups of more than, you know, X number of people, uh, whatever the number of people may be, depending on the locality. So what happened in, I think it was in Belgium, uh, there was a call, you know, a tip to the police that there was a group meeting. And so the police go to the location and uh, they want, you know, of course they want to notify people that they're in breach of the law. They want to ticket them and then break up the meeting. So they go there and what do they find, Nero? Well, what they find is uh, what is described in Belgian media as a gay sex party. Ooh which is a little awkward if you're the police, but it gets better because one of the guys at the party tried to run away and he was actually apprehended trying to climb down a drain pipe while naked. What the hell? (laughs) It gets better because this guy, the one who was trying to get away, was actually a member of the European Parliament. And not only that, uh, he was a very conservative member of said parliament. He, in fact, he was a Hungarian minister of parliament, minister of European parliament, rather. And uh, he was a member of the Fidesz party, which is the party in power currently in Hungary and is known for being very conservative, especially on social issues. And uh, apparently this guy had actually drafted the Hungarian constitutional prohibition on gay marriage. Oh, no. <laughs> How many times has that happened, dude? Someone is like very very opposed to gay marriage and then what are they doing on the weekends well gay sex parties in belgium apparently yeah this guy was named uh and i apologize if i mispronounce it i'm not super up on my hungarian uh his name is joseph sajer sajar maybe but that was a humorous story that kind of caught my eye in the past couple you know whenever it was a week or two ago I in particular liked the bit about the drain pipe. <laughs> We've had a lot of stuff happen this year that you could make movies out of. I feel like people in the TV and film industry don't have to be as creative. Oh, yeah. Did you see the uh, Four Seasons thing? No. What's Rudy that? Giuliani and the Four Seasons. I saw the Borat movie. Is that what that's about? Oh, man, you're in for a treat. It's not the Borat movie. So what oh, happened geez, is what do do now? Rudy Giuliani uh, wanted to, what was it? He wanted to reserve space at a hotel, uh, the Four Seasons Hotel, so that he could have a press conference. But uh, I don't know if he or if it was one of his aides, but uh, they ended up accidentally reserving space at a Four Seasons mechanics shop. And... Uh, they didn't apparently have time to correct the mistake. So they actually had the press conference in front of the shop out in the parking lot. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure chat has more of the details than I do. I can't quite remember all of them off the top of my head. I think one of the humorous aspects of that is that the shop was located uh, next to some kind of sex shop. So you speaking about uh, humorous events that could be fodder for a movie, that kind of reminded me. <laughs> oh, 
I thought that was a landscaping place. I think I did hear about that. Landscaping. Okay, that's what it was. Four Seasons Landscaping. I wonder if they got a discount on <laughs> any parts that people got for hosting it there. Well, I'm sure landscaping companies don't get a lot of calls to reserve space like that. <laughs> so like, this is our moment. <laughs> yeah, branching out the business, I guess. And I kind of wonder who answered that call on their end. Like they could have said, oh, no, we're not the hotel. But I guess they didn't. I'm not sure how that would have worked in practice, but I'm sure there's a story there, too. Hey, people are taking all the business they can get this year. <laughs> okay, so we got that out of the way. Just something for uh, you to bring up later at a Christmas party. A humorous anecdote for you. Okay, so you wanted to talk about the trade war. Yeah. All right, so I've been kind of accumulating notes from the past year and change and trying to get together like a brief review. Uh, not really a review of what's happened, but just kind of a look at how the trade war is evolving and uh, some of the relevant institutions that are involved, um, specifically on the U.S. side for the most part. I wanted to see which institutions were the most relevant in terms of prosecuting the trade war and prosecuting American trade war strategy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the actors involved there uh, so that when you hear news uh, about the U.S. doing something to a Chinese company or, you know, what have you, you'll have some idea about how and who is doing, how, how that's happening and who's responsible for it in the U.S. government. So I'm going to have a little review for that. And then I'm going to briefly touch on different types of barriers that the U.S. is uh, using to... Uh, tackle this trade war thing. It's not, I don't really think of it as a trade war per se, because trade wars generally are about curtailing trade. Whereas what the United States is doing is trying to curtail trade so that it can get actual free trade, which is not something I think other trade wars have aspired to do. Generally, other trade wars have aspired uh, to achieve some political object objective in domestic politics. Whereas this trade war has some of that, but technically uh, free trade is the end point. It is the desired objective, and that's just a little weird. So it's kind of a trade war to achieve free trade. And uh, how that's being done, some of the more specific elements here, I'm going to try to explore those. Again, not in too great a detail, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend this is going to be a comprehensive list either. So, you know, don't walk away thinking that, but this should give you an idea about where the action is, so to speak, in the uh, competition between China and the United States. And I'll probably have got some notes here about this. I'll try to talk a little bit about overarching strategy and uh, some of the different uh, strategies that are being deployed and that could be deployed in the future. Okay, so that said, we can start here with uh, institutions. So. One of the institutions, and probably the most important, is CFIUS. And uh, CFIUS is C-F-I-U-S. And uh, don't, I don't think I have the uh, exact acronym here with me, what it stands for. Something like uh, Congressional Something for Foreign Investment in the United States. I don't recall exactly. Uh, but basically, it's a congressional committee 
actually that's probably what the C is committee. It's a congressional committee uh, that is tasked with uh, judging whether given deals, you know, financial deals, mergers, what have you, uh, are a threat to national security in the United States. And this committee has been around for a while, uh, but it's been, but it's gained new relevance here with the trade war with China. And so it's become a very important institution in that regard. Generally, it focuses more on the financial end of things, and we'll kind of look at finance later. Uh, but for now, uh, keep in mind that whenever the trade war gets talked about, CFIUS is probably uh, one of, if not the most powerful institution, individual institution in U.S. politics that's involved in this uh, trade conflict. Uh, for the curious, uh, CFIUS got new powers in, I think, 2018 as part of a bill called FIRMA. And FIRMA stands for Foreign Investment Review Modernization Act. And uh, that gave them expanded powers to uh, interfere and stop deals that happen in the business world uh, if they are seen as a threat to national security. And it also expanded the definition uh, of threat to national security such that CFIUS had a broader ambit with which to uh, prosecute the trade war. Okay, so that's Cepheus. Next, uh, this is kind of an amorphous one. Uh, this is Team Telecom, which I know sounds like a weird name. This is an informal institution, and it doesn't really have powers to really stop a deal from happening or to otherwise interfere in the uh, private sector. But what it does have is a power to review. Uh, this is actually something that was created in 2020, officially, it had existed a couple years prior informally. Uh, its job basically is uh, to review telecommunications deals. Uh, let me see if I can get the actual note here. Yeah, telecommunications specifically. Uh, I guess hence the name Team Telecom. So this is things like Huawei or what have you uh, that have to deal with anything that ties into the communications network in the United States. Team Telecom is basically tasked with reviewing uh, any investment or uh, other financial dealings that could expose the U.S. communications network uh, to foreign espionage or you know, anything else that could be construed as a national security threat. Uh, the technical name for Team Telecom, Team Telecom is sort of the informal name. Uh, the technical name is Committee for the Assessment of Foreign Participation in the United States Telecommunications Services Sector. You can see why they call it Team Telecom instead. It's a little bit easier. Uh, previously, when it was still in an informal grouping, or an even more informal grouping, I guess, uh, it was a combination of just the DOD, the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Justice, uh, along with various other relevant subsidiary agencies. And uh, they would just pool their resources in order to try to judge you know, different aspects of Chinese telecommunications investment in the United States. Uh, again, it's been relatively more formalized. It's still not like a, an official agency, the equivalent of a department or what have you. you know, that's why they call it a committee. Uh, but since it's been formalized, uh, it has more resources and has more, you know, basically official recognition uh, within the federal bureaucracy. Uh, let's see, the, technically it was formalized in an executive order uh, that allowed it to, quote, review applications for telecom licenses, deals, and other requests made to the FCC. 
So that's sort of the uh, technical description of their power there. Again, they can't do anything in terms of stopping deals outright. It's just a power of review. Uh, but they have a lot of expertise at their disposal, you know, between the DOD, DHS, and DOJ. So they have a lot of influence in that regard. So Team Telecom, something to watch for whenever you're dealing with Huawei or anything else communications related in the trade war. So let's see, a third major institution here, uh, the FCC. This is the Federal Communications something. What was, do you remember what it was, Nero? The FCC what? Uh Federal Communications Commission. There we go. I should probably learn these before I talk about them. The FCC is responsible for uh, regulating basically communications, technology, etc. Uh, they have a pretty broad ambit. Uh, I think a lot of people may remember them from the net neutrality brouhaha from a couple years ago. Uh, they were the relevant agency responsible for regulating that and propagating that particular net neutrality rule that got people so upset. So let's see here, uh, FCC. So the FCC doesn't really have any new powers with regard to the trade war, uh, but the powers they already have are relevant to it. So for example, the FCC can intervene and deny licenses and what have you uh, to anything that is perceived as a threat to national security. You know, you can see a pattern here. National security is the justification for a lot of this interference into the private sector. So the FCC, uh, has been using that sort of national security power to uh, go after Huawei specifically, uh, as well as probably some other entities I'm not aware of, uh, as part of the Trump administration's overall uh, push to pressure uh, Chinese telecommunications firms out of the US market. Let's see, there's also, I guess you could call this, uh, this is a sort of more of a category than an agency. This is executive orders. So the president and the office thereof itself has certain powers that it can use pretty unilaterally, you know, relatively independent of the of the Congress, in order to uh, put pressure on foreign firms as part of uh, the trade war. So one of the powers the executive has that it can use in this vein and that it has been using is uh, economic emergency powers, and these are special emergency powers that were granted to the president as part of the. Uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the IEEPA, a couple decades ago. And this is a very broad license that the executive branch has through these powers uh, to seize assets or uh, otherwise interfere with foreign firms and their workings. Uh, Economic Emergency Powers Acts have been used in the past. Uh, I think the relevant example I think of is Iran. So after the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis, uh, the United States government under the Carter administration used these emergency economic powers uh, to seize Iranian assets in the United States. So similarly, uh, the Trump administration has been using these powers uh, against, again, Huawei. You know, Huawei is going to pop up a lot uh, in order to try to limit their access to uh, the U.S. market. So another executive power here that's relevant uh, is the power to identify a given uh, corporation, firm, or you know, pretty much anything uh, as an entity on the Department of Commerce's entity list. Now, this is pretty similar to economic emergency powers. Basically, this is broad discretion uh, on the part of the executive uh, to designate uh, given, you know, again, companies, countries, whatever, or people even as uh, entities dangerous to a threat to national security 
and that the Department of Commerce then has a uh, prerogative to limit the access to the U.S. market. That's a rough description, but uh, that's pretty much uh, the gamut of relevant executive powers here. And I, I may be missing some, but uh, basically the executive branch has certain powers that it can use relatively unilaterally and economic emergency powers and the Department of Commerce's entity list are some of the more important elements there. So all told here, uh, that's the end of the list here of relevant institutions. So Cepheus, uh, Team Telecom, FCC, and executive powers. Those are all the relevant institutions uh, to the trade war uh, thus far. So I also had a list. I of did see a Huawei store in the mall in downtown Cancun. That's not really a store you see very often in the U.S. Yeah. Sort of like an Apple store is what the function of it was. I mean, it's telecom. Yeah, they sell phones and stuff. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. They've been very, they've been pretty successful at uh, getting into markets other than the United States. So it's not uncommon to see them around. I don't know... Uh, how much longer that's going to last since there's different countries that have been the United States and Europe specifically have been pressuring them. So they've kind of been limited to uh, the developing world, which isn't bad because that's a growth market and it's a pretty large market in any case. Uh, but I don't know that a lot of countries are going, I mean, we're going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about this later, but to kind of get ahead of myself, uh, there's the prospect of the developed world pressuring the developing world uh, to not allow Chinese tech firms like Huawei to operate as freely or at all. So right now that's not really happening much, uh, but that could become an important facet of the trade war, pressuring, basically competing uh, with China over access to the developing world's market. And, uh, it's not really clear yet the degree to which that's going to happen, but, uh, you know, I mean, Mexico obviously is an important market and that's tightly integrated with the United States. So it wouldn't surprise me in the least, for example, if the United States government got worried that uh, Huawei access to the Mexican market might make the United States relatively more vulnerable, again, just on account of the integration between the two economies. So that could lead then to pressure down the line by the U.S. government on the Mexican government to try to reel in and mitigate Huawei access to uh, the Mexican market. But that's speculation on my part. I can't really point to anything specific uh, right now in that vein. But uh, yeah, since you mentioned Huawei, uh, that, uh, that could define the future of Huawei's access to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Let's see, I'll skip the faction stuff since we're getting a new administration in the US anyway. Okay, so some specific actions that have been taken. Uh, so I'll start here with the financial market. And some of this stuff has been the, uh, the last year and a half, roughly. So one of the things the United States is doing is requiring tighter reporting uh, rules as far as Chinese corporations operating in uh, stock markets in the United States. So for example, there was a big scandal over, a, I think it was a coffee firm called Luckin. And uh, they had re registered, they had, a, they had an IPO in, uh, I think, the New York Stock Exchange, and they were trading here. But there was a big scandal about uh, reporting, because it came out that they'd actually been lying about uh, their profits. So 
I think NASDAQ did it by itself. They introduced stricter rules on reporting, uh, but the U.S. government also came out and uh, has passed a law now that requires foreign firms specifically uh, to adhere to U.S. reporting standards if they want access to U.S. financial markets. So that's one way of mitigating access to uh, U.S. markets for Chinese firms, because Chinese firms also have some countervailing uh, legal requirements on their end that actually kind of limit uh, their ability to report uh, all of their numbers, all of their profits and whatnot uh, in other markets. And uh, that's obviously then that puts them kind of an impossible position where they have to choose between, you know, adhering to Chinese regulations or American regulations. But the, uh, the idea there, besides, you know, trying to make sure that you have clean, good reporting in your financial markets, the idea there is that you're limiting uh, access to financial capital in U.S. markets. You know, if you're a Chinese firm, especially if you're a tech firm, which is what's of interest to the U.S. government, uh, you can make a lot of money, you know, uh, having an IPO in U.S. financial markets and limiting access to that hypothetically will uh, somewhat inhibit their progress in developing new competitive technological products that could compete with either U.S. products uh, or even other Western products generally. So that's one thing they want to do, limit access to financial markets. Uh, another thing they've been doing is, I actually already talked about this, expanding the ambit of CFIUS. So again, this is the committee, the congressional committee that uh, reviews you know, financial deals. So by expanding the ambit of uh, CFIUS beyond what it was before, they have more power to uh, stop uh, financial deals and financial doings that uh, previously they may not have been able to. So that just serves to restrict, specifically CFIUS is looking at technology that's dual use. That's their principal concern, technology that could be used for civilian uses or for military uses. And uh, technology like that doesn't really have a lot of regulations that apply to it right now. Technology that is specifically for military uses has lots of regulations. There are export licenses that are required uh, to sell stuff like that outside the United States. But for something that's dual use, it's a little more ambiguous. So CFIUS has uh, been using its expanded powers to try to focus in on dual use technology and uh, any deals, you know, mergers, acquisitions that may result in Chinese companies or the Chinese government gaining access to dual-use technologies. So that's roughly uh, a rough look at how the United States government is trying uh, to restrict access to the financial markets in the United States and to uh, exact better oversight of financial markets in the United States to inhibit uh, the development of China's technological sector. See, I also had a brief thing here on software. Uh, the Trump administration wants to, quote unquote, protect us, uh, specifically protect our data uh, from China's tech sector, because obviously China's tech sector doesn't have uh, strict requirements as far as privacy as the United States does. But I kind of suspect really the Trump administration is just using this as an excuse to try to pressure Chinese tech companies and deny them access to the U.S. market. Uh, the main thing that the Trump administration wanted to do here is stop the sale of Chinese apps on app stores. So, for example, TikTok, WeChat, etc. You know, they've been in the news lately. Uh, although I should point out here that 
the Trump administration's order that uh, TikTok be stricken and banned from app stores uh, was ruled recently uh, to be, I guess, illegal. Uh, I'm sure there's a technical word there I should be using, but basically they can't do that. You know, they, they were required, I think, to produce some rationale for why they wanted to ban TikTok. And uh, the courts found that their rationale was not sufficient. So maybe if they come back with a different, better rationale, they can still do it. But as of now, it doesn't look like that ban is actually going to happen. But technically, this is something that they could do and something they may try to do in future. Uh, well, the U.S. government in general, not just the Trump administration. Uh, they may try to restrict access, uh, restrict the access of Chinese apps to app stores uh, by using national security uh, powers or rationale of one sort or another. Again, this is to re- this is to keep American data out of uh, Chinese data markets. Uh, something else the U.S. government has been trying to do is to stop U.S. firms uh, from storing data on Chinese cloud storage devices. So pretty obvious what that's about. You know, if uh, American firms are taking American data and storing them in uh, Chinese cloud storage units, especially if those cloud st- storage units are... Uh, servers, I should say, cloud storage servers are located in China, then obviously the Chinese government would have pretty ready access to that data. Uh, So the U.S. government has been trying to discourage uh, the market from doing that. I don't think they've done anything to stop it, per se. I don't even know if they have the power to do that. Uh, But this is something that they've uh, pointed to as a strategy going forward. So that's software, Uh, restricting access to data, restricting access to app stores and uh, discouraging the market actors from using Chinese cloud storage. Let's see. So then I had the hardware. Uh, There's a couple different subcategories here. One of them is data protection again. Uh, So in terms of hardware, the Trump administration and presumably future administrations are trying to protect American data in part by stopping the inclusion of US apps on Chinese phones. I know this is kind of software-ish, uh, but the idea here is to uh, inhibit the uh, utility of Chinese phones, which is more hardware. So this is Huawei again, basically. Uh, they wanted to, what they did is they re- t- basically banned Google uh, from allowing Huawei to include their apps on their phone. And Google apps are very popular, obviously, on smartphones around the world. So not having access to those was a pretty severe blow for Huawei and their phones. So that was kind of the impetus there uh, for stopping the inclusion of U.S. apps on Chinese phones. It was uh, specifically targeting hardware, specifically targeting Huawei phones. Uh, Something else they've done here in this vein, they've uh, stopped Chinese carriers, again, Huawei, from entering the U.S. market. Uh, You know, we already talked about the different institutions that the United States is using to prosecute the trade war. And basically every example I used of specific things they're doing involved Huawei. So uh, I think it's pretty clear, you know, what's happening there. Uh, again, just trying to restrict the advancement of uh, Chinese, the Chinese technological sector and Huawei in particular, uh, but by denying them profits in the U.S. market and also, you know, technically protecting U.S. data. Uh, let's see. And so the third point here on data protection Ah, right. This is the undersea cable thing. So I don't remember which company it was. I think it was one of the big fang companies. Uh, They had a joint project to build an undersea cable connecting to the U.S. 
uh, to the global internet. Uh, obviously, it's already connected to the global internet, uh, but connecting, I think, uh, increasing connectivity uh, to the Asian market specifically. And they were going to uh, connect to this network to, I think, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and uh, a couple other places in particular. And what the Trump administration did is to come out and say that they could not connect to Hong Kong. They said specifically that that would have exposed American data to Chinese espionage. And so uh, this project ended up having to scrap the Hong Kong link. Uh, I don't know if they built it and then disabled it or if they haven't built it yet and have now planned not to. But uh, regardless, that project is not now going to connect to Hong Kong as it was previously planned. Uh, it's worth noting that the rest of the project is continuing. They can still connect to the Philippines and the other parts of uh, Southeast Asia that they want to connect wanted to connect to. Uh, but the undersea cables will not, well, this specific project anyway, the undersea cables as part of this project will not continue on to Hong Kong. So that's another uh, way that the Trump administration is trying to inhibit trade between the United States and China, uh, just making it a little more difficult to uh, exchange in digital commerce, as it were. So let's see, another way that hardware uh, is part of the trade war here, uh, the Trump administration has been trying to mitigate the risk of sabotage. And uh, this has to do with electrical equipment. Uh, China has become, I believe anyway, the world's leading producer of electrical equipment. And uh, if you don't want, know what that means exactly, it doesn't, well, actually look, <laughs> Probably everybody thinks they know what it means. For a long time, I thought it just meant anything that it was electronic, but that's actually not what that means. Apparently the term technically, that is to say electric uh, machinery or what have you, refers specifically to machinery that's involved in the production or dissemination and distribution of electricity. So think like power lines or electric generators or things like that. Uh, China is the world's leading producer of those kinds of goods at this point. Uh, maybe not in every single category, but in a lot of them, if not most of them. So one of the things that the uh, U.S. government is worried about is that China may somehow sabotage the uh, electrical equipment that it sells to the United States. So as a result, one of the things the Trump administration has done is issued an executive order banning the import of electrical equipment from, uh, quote unquote, foreign adversaries. So I think everybody knows that's sp sp pretty much specifically targeting China there. So as a result, uh, there's going to be a pretty dramatic shift here in the electric machinery trade between China and the United States. I doubt it's going to reshore into the United States. It's probably just going to shift to another country. But uh, regardless, because China has such a dominant position in that market, uh, the outright ban on importation of those goods is uh, pretty dramatic and could have a dramatic effect on uh, how the industry is structured globally. But uh, anyway, that's one of the things that's happened in the trade war here uh, in terms of hardware. Uh, there was also another, uh, no, there was a review ordered by the government in the United States uh, of the equipment, of the Chinese electrical equipment that had already been sold to the, in the United States and had already been deployed. Uh, specifically, there was an act. Uh, so this is something separate, but this is uh, part of that review of electrical equipment, Chinese electrical equipment in the United States is an act passed by Congress called the 2020 Secure and Trusted Communications Networks Act. And uh, that act directed the FCC to set up a reimbursement program uh, to help replace uh, quote unquote covered equipment. So basically the government is going to pay people to replace their Chinese electrical equipment uh, with other equipment. Uh, 
So in addition to stopping the importation of said equipment. So a pretty blanket uh, attempt by the U.S. government here to remove uh, Chinese electrical equipment from the market and to prevent its entry into the market in future. So let's see, still on hardware here, one final uh, subcategory. Uh, one of the things the U.S. government is, do is doing is inhibiting the development of Chinese technology. Uh, this is sort of just broadly speaking. So there's a new licensing regime that the U.S. government uh, has implemented. I think it has come into effect now. And uh, it's not only for U.S. Uh, firms, but also uh, for pretty much, well, it's specifically an export regime, a licensing regime for U.S. companies, but it's going to have an impact on everybody because uh, almost you know, everybody around the world uses uh, U.S. capital equipment. You know, not always, not everywhere, but uh, the U.S. has a pretty dominant share of the market in a lot of ways. So, uh, oh, also, I should say it's not just capital equipment. That also includes uh, software and whatnot. Uh, and, you know, the relevant point here is software that's used in the production of semiconductors. So the idea here, what the U.S. government wanted to do uh, is to try to address this problem that it has that some U.S. technology is used as an input for goods that are made abroad that are then sold on to China. So uh, U.S. software is used, for example, to produce uh, capital equipment that is used in the production of semiconductors, but the U.S. doesn't really have a lot of uh, producers of semiconductor capital, per se. And in fact, the world's leading producer right now of uh, semiconductor production equipment, so to speak, is a company called ASML. And it's actually a Dutch company. And they're not the only producer of uh, semiconductor capital equipment, but they do make the most advanced kind that you would use if you wanted to make cutting edge semiconductors. So obviously, the United States government doesn't want uh, the Chinese government, or, well, the Chinese economy, rather, producing semiconductors that can be competitive with Western semiconductors, uh, not only for economic reasons, but also for military reasons. Uh, they don't want Chinese digital technology to be sufficiently advanced that the Chinese military could reach par uh, with the United States military or with other Western militaries. So the idea here is that uh, the software company that sells uh, software to this Dutch company that makes this capital equipment is going to have to get an export license in order to license in order to export that software to the Dutch company. And the interesting thing here is that uh, the U.S. government is requiring that foreign companies receive exemptions from the U.S. government if they want American licensees uh, to export to them. So in other words, if, AS, if ASML wants to continue to receive software from uh, the U.S. software company and also continue to sell equipment uh, or sell equipment at all to China, they're going to have to get a special exemption from the United States. Uh, if they don't get that exemption and they continue to sell to China, uh, then the U.S. software company is not going to be able to get that exporting license. And the result is that... Uh, they're not going to be able to get that input that they need, you know, the software. So ASML then is going to have to come to the U.S. government and get an exemption, which they won't be able to get, which means that they're going to have to stop selling through China. And uh, that's really interesting because that really shows the power of the U.S. government in the world economy. 
you know, obviously U.S. power has been declining in, you know, relative to other powers around the world. But overall, U.S. power is still great enough that uh, the U.S. can, in effect, uh, enact and impose a licensing regime on foreign countries, even developed countries like Europe. Again, this is a Dutch company that's being affected by this. Uh, so this is a really this is really a testament to uh, the influence of the U.S. economy and, in turn, the U.S. government here. But again, just to bring this full circle, this is all a measure that is meant to uh, inhibit the development of the Chinese semiconductor industry. And uh, again, this comes in the form of an export licensing regime. So another technique that's being used here as far as inhibiting the development of Chinese tech, uh, the Department of Commerce's entities list. You know, Again, I mentioned this a little bit before. There are two companies, two Chinese companies that have been placed on the entities list in an effort to uh, restrict the development of Chinese tech. One is obviously Huawei, uh, major tech developer, smartphone manufacturer, et cetera, uh, in China. Uh, the other company is called SMIC, the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation. And uh, this company is basically China's main semiconductor manufacturer. Uh, the, the semiconductors they make are not uh, globally competitive right now, but uh, they're trying very hard to become competitive. The Chinese government is you know, giving them lots of funds, subsidies, et cetera, and is uh, probably trying to help them out with espionage as well, trying to get them uh, IP to try to get them to a point where they're globally competitive. I think the most charitable assessment that I've read is that they'll become globally competitive at the earliest in 10 years, but it could well take longer. The semiconductors are very complicated and the supply chains are very complicated. Uh, a fact that the U.S. government is trying to exploit, you know, as you can see from the uh, talk we're having here. But both those companies have been placed on the Department of Company, the Department of Commerce's entities list, in an effort to restrict their access to U.S. markets. So they can't get U.S. Uh, financing, they can't uh, get U.S. imports, you know, they can't source from uh, U.S. producers of intermediate goods, you know, etc. So they've pretty well been cut out of the U.S. economy. Uh, so another technique that the U.S. is using here is just diplomacy. They're pushing, there's been a diplomatic push by the United States uh, to try to get different states around the world to disallow Huawei from operating in those states. Uh, so this is something that's been more successful this year, actually. Uh, it, was, it was kind of seen as a very unsuccessful effort on the part of the Trump administration to try to do this, to try to get Europe in particular to stop allowing Huawei to operate. Uh, but over the past year, uh, China has become relatively more aggressive, you know, not just because of COVID, even before the, even before that, you know, the Chinese government had taken on a more belligerent diplomatic posture. So uh, between that and ongoing problems with uh, espionage and intellectual property violations and that kind of thing, uh, Europe, especially Western Europe, has kind of had a change of heart about Huawei. And I think uh, the most dramatic example is the United Kingdom, which had been trying very hard to ingratiate itself with China over the past 10 years in order to try to get uh, Chinese investment to help uh, spark some growth in the British economy. Uh, they had gone out of their way to allow Huawei to uh, operate in the British economy, and not just in terms of smartphones. Huawei also produces a lot of networking equipment, telecommunications equipment, etc. And a lot of that was uh, introduced into the British economy. Uh, significantly so. But over the past year, the British government has decided that they don't want to allow that. And not only do they not want to allow it, uh, they want to reverse uh, the presence of Huawei telecommunications equipment in Britain. 
So uh, I think I've heard this described uh, in an article as trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, in terms of the difficulty, it's going to be pretty hard, but the British government has apparently made this uh, a priority. So they are going to try to replace all of this Huawei telecommunications equipment uh, with Western sourced equivalents. Uh, it's probably going to take a while and it's going to be expensive because there's a lot of it, but uh, they are trying to do that. So that illustrates a diplomatic victory on the part of uh, the US government since that's something they've been trying to do. Uh, again, you know, there were sort of endogenous reasons for that happening outside of the US government diplomatic activity, but US pressure was definitely a part of the calculus there. So all of these here are examples of uh, the US government kind of attacking hardware in terms of the trade war. Okay, so then, so some things, uh, government spending here. So how is the government using government procurement uh, to pressure China in the trade war? So let's see, I've got two things here listed. Uh, one is pensions. Uh, government workers have pensions and uh, those pensions have to be managed. So generally pensions are allowed to, manage, allowed to be managed pretty much however the market wants. You know, you kind of invest wherever. Uh, but up until now, they've been pretty free to also invest in, you know, Chinese companies. So one of the new rules that was passed in the Trump administration is that pensions cannot do that. Uh, you know, if you are a government worker and your pension is a basically government pension, uh, a government, a fund of government pensions, rather, uh, that fund cannot invest in Chinese companies. Uh, or at least that's a requirement that is being imposed on the government workers such that the company in effect de facto cannot invest in the companies. Uh, so that's one, th that's one way of denying financing to Chinese companies. Uh, the other thing they're doing here is explicitly restricting procurement. And this is something that's been happening in stages. So I'll just kind of try to blow through them right here. Uh, there was an NDAA, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act. Basically, this is how the military gets budgeted every year. And uh, the NDAA uh, in question, uh, the first NDAA that addressed this was in 2017. And it restricted government agencies from purchasing technology from ZTE or Huawei. You know, Huawei, again, telecommunications, uh, smartphones, what have you. ZTE is a major chip maker, I think, uh, in China. So basically, the US government restricted itself uh, from purchasing technology from these specific firms. Now, in 2017, the restriction was actually limited to the Department of Defense. Uh, in the 2019 NDAA, it was applied to all federal agencies. And in 2020, uh, they expanded the scope of it, uh, not only to all federal agencies, but they specifically restricted all federal agencies from, from contracting with any entity that purchases from ZTE or Huawei. So that's kind of a second order effect there. It's not just that they can't buy from ZTE or Huawei, but anybody who contracts them uh, becomes automatically ineligible for federal contracts in the United States. So a much broader based ban there. Uh, in 2019, there was also a presidential order that uh, conditionally expanded the scope of these bans. Uh, basically the Department of Commerce here, I'm, I basically have to read this from my notes because I don't remember the details exactly, but the Department of Commerce was given the power to block contracts that were deemed a risk to national security. Uh, again, this is specifically with regard to uh, government procurement. 
the oversight was applied to contractors that owned any quote unquote property in which any foreign country or foreign national has any interest, end quote. So again, that greatly expands the ambit of the ban there because uh, lots of companies uh, own property in you know, all parts of the world and you're basically tasking the US government from tracking all of that and making sure that none of the contractors you're doing business with have any property uh, in which any foreign country or foreign national has any interest of any kind. Pretty difficult, very high bar. I doubt they'll be able to actually enforce that substantively. But again, this is all just illustrating uh, the degree to which government procurement can be used uh, to restrict access to government contracts, uh, to restrict access to government contracts by Chinese firms. Uh, let's see. So in 2019, the FCC, there was an FCC rule prohibiting Universal Service Fund, the Universal Service Fund, from purchasing from, quote, any company identified as posing a national security threat to communications networks or the communications supply chain. And uh, the Universal Service Fund, I think, is a firm meant to help. Yeah, that's what it is. It's right here. The Universal Service Fund is a fund that is meant to help rural areas get access to the Internet. So a special program here to subsidize uh, building infrastructure to connect rural areas to the internet. That fund is restricted from getting any relevant equipment from China, basically. And then in 2020, there was the Secure and Trusted Communications Networks Act. Uh, this banned the use of, quote, federal communications subsidy funds to purchase, lease, or maintain covered equipment. So basically expanding uh, this restriction here uh, to any Chinese firms, basically. That's what covered equipment basically means at this point. So not just the uh, rural, what was it? The uh, universal something or other I was just looking at. The universal service fund is a type of subsidy program. So basically this rule took that, that same rule, that same restriction that was applied to the universal service fund and applied it to all other subsidy funds in the government, specifically telecommunications subsidy funds. So that's a look at how the government has been using procurement as a uh, tool in the trade war and also pensions. So something else the federal government has been doing, uh, this is a little more abstract. This is identifying strategic checkpoints in supply chains. So this isn't really stopping anything from happening. This is more just gaining information about the market such that we can know where the vulnerabilities are such that later on we might do something about it. Uh, I have three items specifically listed here. One of them is pharmaceuticals. Uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients, which are basically the raw inputs you use to make pharmaceuticals, uh, they have been identified as a vulnerability because uh, China basically has a monopoly over a lot of those raw ingredients. Uh, technically, the U.S. imports more drugs from India than it does from China, uh, but most of the drugs and pharmaceuticals that India makes source their API from India, from China rather. So even though we're buying from India, effectively, China still has influence there over the supply chain. So that could be something that uh, the U.S. government works on in the future, uh, trying to source more API from another country or encouraging the development of uh, more API production in the United States or an allied country. Uh, let's see, another item here, medical supplies. I think this is pretty obvious. There was a lot of uh, shortages of uh, PPP early in the COVID pandemic. 
uh, probably still is in a lot of places. So China produces a lot of that stuff, masks, gloves, etc. So that was identified then as a vulnerability that the United States should try to address in the future. What is PPP? Personal protective something. Basically, medical supplies meant to protect you from the risk of infection or what have you. I tried to Google it, but I'm, <laughs> I trust chat. I'm sure chat is on it. Person protective equipment Thank or you. personal protective equipment. Oh, so it would be PPE, not PPP. Actually, PPP is a subsidy program. Personal payment protection programs. That's something else entirely. Thank you for the correction. Uh, one, final, one final item here on supply chains, uh, rare earths. Uh, rare earths are just very rare. Well, they're actually not rare. <laughs> they're actually unusual, I guess. Let's call they're unusual minerals with special properties. And um, they're not actually all that rare. They're relatively common. I, I don't think they're as common as certain other minerals, but they're more common than the name would imply from what I've read. Uh, but the issue here is that uh, there's an immense environmental cost to producing them just because of the nature of uh, getting them out of the ground and then refining them. So a lot of developed markets actually don't have rare earths production anymore just because of environmental regulations that make it prohibitively expensive. And uh, the result of that has been that China monopolizes the market for rare earth materials. And the reason that's a problem is because uh, rare earth minerals are critical to the production of most electronics. So semiconductors, you know, uh, electronic goods generally, you know, whatever you can think of, it probably has rare earths in it of some kind. And uh, China not only monopolizes uh, the mining of rare earths, they also monopolize the refining of rare earths. So, you know, even if you started uh, mining rare earths outside China again, you would still have to develop a refining industry also. So that's a problem then for uh, the electronics industry writ large, if not the technology industry in general uh, in the West and in the United States in particular. So that's something else that could be worked on. I think uh, the government has been trying to encourage more rare earths production in the United States, but it's debatable whether or not anything will come of it. But anyway, this is, some, this is all stuff that the trade war has uh, led the United States to do. So kind of ties into the trade war that way. So let's see, another category of trade war action, uh, legal warfare, uh, for lack of a better term. This is basically the U.S. government uh, using the law to try to restrict access to U.S. markets and otherwise pressure Chinese companies. Some of this is more substantive than other bits. <laughs> so one of the things the U.S. government tried to do is use... Uh, RICO legislation. This is a racketeering legislation used to tackle organized crime, generally. And uh, they tried to use it against Huawei executives in order to uh, hit them with some big fines of some kind. I don't really remember what the legal justification was. I doubt it was very substantive, since that's not really what RICO was meant for. Uh, but this is something that they tried to do. Let's see. So another legal avenue here that the U.S. government has tried to use, uh, pressuring international... Po oh, right. I remember this. So before uh, last year, there was a special exemption given to China in postal rates. Uh, there's an international institution that is uh, used to govern, basically, uh, postal rates between different countries. 
and that governs you know international postal issues generally and uh, that group that institution had an agreement baked in that developing countries got lower rates just by default and that was meant to try to uh, help them develop economically and give them you know a little advantage now china's economy has developed quite a bit but technically they're still a developing economy so they still qualified uh, for that reduced rate and obviously the trump administration didn't like that so uh, they challenged uh, this uh, international shipping institution. I wish I had the name with me here, but uh, they challenged it and basically threatened it that if they didn't uh, redefine China, then they would uh, punish them. And I don't have I don't have on in my notes here exactly how they were planning on punishing them exactly, but apparently it was a sufficiently credible threat that the rule change was made. Uh, and the result of that is that shipping is now shipping from China is now relatively more expensive than it was before. So another barrier to trade in that way. Let's see. And so the final item here in the legal warfare category, uh, the Trump administration has been pressuring the WTO to update and enforce pr provisions on state owned enterprises. Uh, so the WTO require has a lot of restrictions about the, the degree to which the degree to which states can subsidize companies. Uh, you're not really supposed to do it all that much. And ideally, you wouldn't be doing it at all under WTO provisions. But obviously, China has been kind of ignoring that. And uh, there's been relatively limited traction in terms of bringing uh, that to case, um, bringing that to arbitration, rather, WTO arbitration. So because the WTO hasn't really been able to stop uh, China from doing that, there's been a lot of pressure from the United States government to introduce new rules and to better enforce existing rules. One of the ways the US has been pressuring the WTO is to refuse to uh, appoint new adjudicators. You know, There's a arbitration court that they have as part of their dispute settlement me mechanism uh, in the WTO. And because there has not been new arbiters uh, appointed, new judges, I should say, appointed, uh, that whole system has been backlogged. And uh, other members of the WTO have been having to resort to using uh, arbiters and arbitration outside of the WTO mechanism. But again, that's another way that the uh, Trump administration has been using a, you know, a legal mechanism uh, to try to pressure China. And then another abstract category here, reputational damage. The US has asserted that they found a back door in Huawei tech somewhere. Uh, they didn't actually offer any substantive proof there. Uh, but if there were a back door in Huawei tech, that would be obviously of great concern to uh, consumers since they would obviously prefer their tech uh, respect privacy. But given that that is a, a priority for tech firms, the US government trying to undermine the credibility of Huawei tech is an obvious strategy uh, for trying to mitigate their success and uh, profits. And then the US government was all, has also been accusing China of debt trap diplomacy. This ties into the Belt and Road project. Um, I think this has been pretty well covered in media, but for those of you uh, maybe not familiar with what this refers to, uh, China has been lending a lot of money overseas to developing countries for various reasons. But uh, the gist of it here is that uh, it's been lending so much money that uh, a lot of countries seem to be in trouble debt-wise. And the accusation is that China is doing that on purpose because they want countries to default on their debt to China so that China can extract concessions for them from them in exchange for uh, concessions in country. 
think I might have worded that wrong. They get some concessions. They want developing countries to default on their debt to China so that China can offer to forgive the debt in exchange for concessions. There we go. That's, I think that wording is better. <clears throat> and um, to a degree that's happened in some cases, but I don't, I think it's been overblown in general. You know, uh, if you actually break down the actual cases where it's happened, it's not as substantive as you might think it is. But in general, this is an example of uh, the United States trying to do reputational damage, just trying to undermine the, uh, relations china has with other countries you know again all of that ties in with the uh, trade war so that's all of the notes i have as far as u.s actions and tactics you know in the trade war um i think i've got how long did that take buck 30 that's not too bad i had some other stuff here on strategy but i don't know if i can do it all off the top of my head here I guess I could. We can jump in if you're okay with it, Nero. Yeah, so trade war has a lot of different elements to it. What is the desired outcome? What are we trying to establish here? Well, the desired outcome uh, has a couple tracks to it, if you like. Um, I think the one that the Trump administration, well, that Donald Trump himself used to get elected pretty much, uh, was economic competition. You know, the idea that uh, Chinese firms are using subsidies from the government to produce goods at a price that, you know, other countries can't meet. And in that way, the competition is unfair. Uh, you know, other forms of basically unfairness in the economic relationship, like uh, subsidies being one, uh, intellectual property violations, stealing technology from firms that are required to transfer technology as a condition for entering the Chinese market, uh, and also requiring local partners. That's another way of getting technology. So in general, unfairness uh, in the economic relationship is one of the issues. So one of the objectives in the trade war is, try, is to try to pressure China into agreeing to a new status quo, uh, some kind of new trade agreement uh, in, which that, in which those issues would be addressed and in which trade can continue in a more fair manner. Fair is obviously very subjective. So there's a pretty strong political element to this particular track. Uh, but yeah, fairness is one track. Uh, that is one objective that we're pushing for. Um, another track, so to speak, is the military track. And this is the one that has to do with trying to make sure that the Chinese military does not get access to the newest and best technologies uh, such that they could become a peer competitor to the United States. So this track has to do with uh, things like artificial intelligence, you know, algorithms, uh, software, semiconductors, uh, you know, techie stuff like that. And that's uh, more sort of the purview of some of the hardware stuff. You know, we talked before about hardware and uh, specifically what the U.S. government is doing with regard to those particular areas of the trading relationship. Uh, that generally is more related to the military side of the trade war. So fairness is an objective. Uh, there's a military objective. There's also an espionage objective which is kind of similar to the military objective, but I think it's distinctive uh, sufficiently so that it can be its own track. And the idea here is to, uh, it's, this track basically recognizes that Chinese telecommunications equipment is becoming more and more competitive. And because that's the case, there's more and more scope for the Chinese to basically do what the United States already has been doing for a couple of decades now. You know, basically the US uses 
uh, U.S. equipment uh, to kind of survey the wor- surveil the world in various different ways. But the fear is that the Chinese government will do something similar if Chinese telecommunications equipment is widespread, certainly within the United States. So the espionage track then has to do with restricting uh, things like Huawei, specifically the telecommunications equipment, um, the smartphones to a lesser degree. I don't think they care so much about the smartphones, but uh, telecommunications equipment in particular, and also data. Uh, the, you know, we talked before about what the United States government was doing to uh, restrict Chinese access to American data. So this is all part of uh, the espionage track as well, because they don't want the Chinese government getting access to data and using it uh, to try to le- get leverage over individuals, you know, blackmail them or what have you uh, to achieve some you know, nefarious ends. I mean, maybe blackmailing them to get access to new technology, uh, to spy on the U.S. government or, you know, whatever. So those are sort of the three big tracks there, fairness, military, espionage. I think those are pretty much the only big ones, if I'm remembering off the top of my head correctly. So I would say those would be your objectives, Nero. Mm-hmm. But I guess I've got I've got some more stuff here, but it doesn't have to do with like tactics per se. It has more to do with uh, response and strategy. So I guess I'll just get into that and try to make it as painless as possible. So how is China responding to the trade war? What are some things that they've done in response to U.S. trade pressure? So one of the things they've done is accelerated their industrial policy. Uh, they've moved up the, their schedule for opening up, opening up their automotive market. Uh, the, you know, one of the ways that you can make an industry competitive is to open it up to international competition. And uh, there's kind of a threshold you know, beyond which it's feasible and under which it's not feasible. You do want to have a if you do want to develop a new industry and you want to do it by you know explicit state support you're generally going to have an infant industry period where you're just protecting it from protection and once it reaches a certain threshold where you think it can compete then you allow the competition to happen internationally and generally they'll get hammered they'll lose money for a while but eventually that's kind of for the best so to speak you know where again where the threshold is is a little ambiguous Uh, south korea i don't think I think South Korea did international competition pretty much from the get-go. So their threshold was very low. They pretty much just started using subsidies right away. Uh, but then in other cases, you know, countries didn't expose their companies, their infant industries to international competition until much later. And uh, that didn't generally end well. <laughs> really, that was very expensive. But in some cases, it did work out. I think Brazil's aeronautics industry is a case in point. That was protected for a very long time and probably still is protected, but not as much as it used to be. And it's now a a significant competitive producer of uh, mid-sized civilian planes, if I remember correctly, at this point in the global market. So anyway, China's industrial policy is meant to try to develop new industries, especially competitive industries uh, in areas that are going to be major in the future, like uh, green technology, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but they're also focusing on traditional industrial stuff like automotive. So they're going to try to introduce international competition. They've been planning on doing it to try to make the uh, make their producers more competitive. But the trade war with the U.S. has accelerated the schedule a bit. You know, they've kind of offered that as a concession, quote unquote, to the United States. But it was something they were actually already planning to do. Uh, let's see. And they were also, yeah, they also want to open up uh, for the same reason. They want to open up their financial markets. 
Um, not entirely, but they have been liberalizing that. And that's actually been something that's uh, characterized China's economy over the past year, year and a half or so. So let's see. So there's been some acceleration in those terms. Uh, another way that the China that the Chinese government has responded. Uh, that's right. They've been trying to deal with SWIFT. So the SWIFT banking system is basically this international system that governs exchanges between banks. And one of the ways that the United States exerts influence in the world is to threaten the institution in Belgium that runs SWIFT with sanctions if they don't disallow uh, this, that, or the other you know, entity from using the system. And uh, the effect of those sanctions is to effectively lock out uh, companies, firms, or individuals from international finance. So China is very aware of the fact that the United States could block them in this way from international finance. And it's a, it's a pretty significant concern. It hasn't happened yet because it's a kind of nuclear option. You know, China has different ways that it could retaliate substantively. But uh, I don't think the Chinese government is comfortable with the fact that this is a sword hanging over their head. So they've taken action over the past couple of years to try to find ways around SWIFT so that if and when they are denied access to SWIFT, they'll have some alternatives in place. So one thing they've done is design an alternative payment system, basically uh, something like SWIFT that could be used as an alternative. Uh, that's called the cross-border interbank payment system. It's debatable uh, how much use it's going to get, you know, how feasible it's really going to be, but they have technically developed this as an alternative. Uh, something else they've done, they uh, proposed a digital yuan, quote unquote, uh, for use in cross-border transactions. And uh, they're basing the value of it on currency swaps between central banks. I don't know if that's going to work. I think this is kind of like a Bitcoin type thing. Uh, hypothetically, there's potential there. I mean, this ties into the whole conversation about how viable uh, cryptocurrency is uh, as an alternative to you know traditional currency. And there's a whole debate there, but in general, it's not. My impression of it as of now is that uh, cryptocurrency is not really a viable alternative in the long term. It can be a decent investment vehicle since there is a scarcity there that limits the that limits uh, production, so to speak. Uh, but that said, as a uh, medium of exchange, you know, as something that you would use for currency, it's not very practical. The underlying technology is useful. You know, the blockchain technology is probably going to see wider use at some point, but for now there are pretty severe limitations that, uh, restrict its viability. So that said, uh, this effort by the Chinese government to introduce a digital yuan, you know, quote unquote, um, it has potential since uh, even if, even with the impracticality of cryptocurrency, uh, something like a digital yuan could work given that there would be a lot of demand for it in the event of China being cut off from international markets. But it would be an imperfect vassal, again, for the reasons you know, described, for the because there are so many limitations to cryptocurrency, all of those would apply here. And so it's debatable whether or not this would really uh, significantly mitigate the damage that would be done from getting out of SWIFT. So then the third thing they're doing here, uh, they've started trying to price some of their exports in Ramimbi. And the idea there is that uh, countries would, well, actors, economic actors would not have to uh, use SWIFT because they wouldn't be using dollars since uh, SWIFT is used to verify, you know, dollars and whatnot. I don't know if that's really, I don't know if pricing exports in Remimbi actually matters. And we've talked a lot over time about 
how reserve currencies work and how they don't work the way a lot of people seem to think they work. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that pricing in Remimbi is really going to make a difference here. Uh, it'll make a difference in the sense that you won't have to use Swift per se, but Swift is used for other currencies too. And it's also not just currency specific, but it's used to validate transactions between banks. And that doesn't really have to do with currency per se. So it's still useful even beyond currency in that sense. Uh, but Pricing in Remimbi does make it uh, feasible for countries to, uh, well, not countries, but economic actors, market actors to use the alternative payment system I mentioned before, since uh, if you're using dollars, presumably you wouldn't be using that system. So pushing Remimbi priced goods is a part of uh, pushing the cross-border interbank payment system, you could say. So all of those are things that uh, the Chinese have been doing in order to mitigate the potential risk and vulnerability to swift sanctions by the United States. Let's see. So another thing they've been doing, uh, Chinese response to U.S. trade pressure. Uh, they passed a law affecting firms operating overseas, restricting their ability to share technology, ironically. <laughs> this specifically had to do with TikTok. Uh, this is a rule they passed to, to uh, prevent TikTok from sharing their algorithm technology. Uh, with a potential U.S. buyer, since for a while it was looking like TikTok would have to divest its U.S. branch. So this is an effort on the part of China to try to protect their advantage, or their perceived advantage anyway, uh, in artificial intelligence and algorithm technology. Uh, they're also trying to invest in tech uh, where they're still lacking in self-sufficiency. Obviously, there's the threat of being cut off not only from the SWIFT banking system, but also from suppliers generally. And one of the things they're worried about is being cut off from semiconductors. So they've been investing a lot more in their semiconductor industry. Uh, they're all are, already talked about SWIFT banking. Uh, and they're also trying to engage more with Africa, partly in order to get around. Uh, if they get locked out of the U.S. market, they're probably going to get locked out of Europe too. Uh, but if they invest in Africa, then they'll have kind of an alternative market that they can uh, rely on, kind of a backup market. So they've been trying to improve relations with them, uh, partly for that reason. Also for other reasons, part of, part of the industrial policy is selling goods and services to the developing world to try to increase demand and uh, increase production. So that's also part of that strategy there. But... Uh, there's also this desire to uh, get around SWIFT banking by encouraging uh, trade with Africa so that Africa would find it relatively easy to trade in uh, alternatives to SWIFT if it came to it. Let's see, some, some of the ways that China has been circumventing U.S. pressure, that is to say, getting around high tariffs and other trade restrictions. Uh, one of the things that Chinese companies have tried to do is to set up shop in Singapore and uh, basically import from China and then export from Singapore, and in doing so, pretending to be Singapore firms exporting to the United States. Singapore doesn't have all the trade restrictions that China is facing, so this is a way to get around the tariffs, basically. Uh, some of the, the Chinese government, for their part, have repackaged planned reforms as quote-unquote concessions in order to try to alleviate pressure. Uh, this kind of, I already talked about the automotive market, you know, that's an example there or the financial market. They were already planning on opening those up, but uh, they've repackaged those as concessions in uh, trade talks with the Trump administration in order to try to 
alleviate the pressure. I suspect the Trump administration knows they're doing that. I suspect they just accepted that uh, so that they themselves could paint it in domestic American politics as a concession. Um, you know, getting into the handling of the trade talks is a whole other conversation unto itself. Uh, but for now, just know that this is one of the ways that, they, that the Chinese government has been trying to address U.S. pressure. Uh, something else they've done, IPOs in Hong Kong rather than New York. This is something that the Chinese firms have been doing. You know, it's getting harder to get access to uh, U.S. financial markets. And even for those firms that can get access, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether they'll have access in the long term. So what they're doing then is they're, uh, you know, issuing their stocks in Hong Kong and its, and its stock exchange instead of in uh, New York as a way of kind of, uh, as a way of raising capital uh, without having to worry about potential uh, U.S. pressure. Let's see. They're also trying mergers and acquisitions of new technology through proxy firms. That's something they've been doing for a long time. Basically, they invest in tech firms in Silicon Valley or wherever they can find them. And uh, they use the merger and acquisition as a chance to take the technology back to China. But again, that's not really a way to circumvent U.S. pressure per se. Again, they were already kind of doing that. Uh, but it is kind of a sneaky way to get around U.S. restrictions. And uh, it is something they still do. You know, a lot of tech firms are, a lot of innovative tech firms anyway are smaller. And it's harder for large bureaucracies to police small firms like that. So even while the U.S. government is trying harder to restrict access to U.S. Uh, technology, uh, they find it's going to be difficult even so. Uh, just because small firms are just under their radar. You know, you don't even notice them a lot of the time. And then, of course, China engages in a lot of espionage to steal technology, uh, intellectual property, what have you. All of that meant to uh, boost uh, Chinese economic producers and get around American restrictions you know, uh, on Chinese access to the U.S. market. So that's just a quick review there of some of the things that China is doing in response to uh, U.S. trade pressure. And we'll skip impact. I had some notes on the trade war impact economically, but that's not really complete. So I guess I could do the summary here real quick. So U.S. trade strategy review. Um, one thing, pressuring China open up markets. That has to do with the fairness track we talked about before. Uh, restricting access to sensitive U.S. markets um, in terms of telecommunications. That means Huawei. Uh, the undersea cable to Hong Kong, uh, et cetera. It's worth noting here that uh, making this work kind of requires allies to participate since the United States has communications ties, economic ties, et cetera, that are very close with Europe and whatnot. So if Europe opens up their telecommunications to China, then that kind of exposes the United States indirectly. So it's important to have a group effort there diplomatically. Uh, another argument in favor of multi multilateralism in that sense. Uh, in terms of social media, TikTok, um, that's a little bit overblown, but that ties into the whole data protection thing. And then electrical equipment, which we mentioned before. And then uh, let's see. So that's pressuring China to open up markets, restricting access to more sensitive markets, uh, inhibiting access to dual use technologies. We talked about that, onshoring industries. There's a kind of a push by the U.S. government to try to adjust, address vulnerabilities in the supply chain by incentivizing onshoring. It's debatable whether or not this is going to actually work. Uh, but one of the things they did is to issue subsidies uh, for a rare earths refinery in Texas. I think the company is called Linus. 
Uh, it remains to be seen if this is actually going to be viable, since I don't think they've gotten all of the environmental permits and stuff sorted out. Uh, but this represents a, an attempt by the U.S. to use onshoring in order to address this vulnerability in the supply chain. Uh, they've also issued incentives to bring back some offshore manufacturers, uh, semiconductor fab units in particular. Again, not clear that's going to work, but it is something that they're trying to do. Uh, let's see. So that's the United States and its strategy, uh, China trade strategy. So their strategy is playing for time. You know, they don't. They think they could probably get a better deal after the Trump administration, uh, or you know, maybe they don't even want a better deal, but just want. Uh, more coherent policy on the part of the counterparty. You know, the trade talks on the part of the trade Trump administration were a little hectic and unorganized. You know, I would say that the idea of challenging China was overall a good idea on the part of the Trump administration, but the uh, actual execution of the policy was a bit lacking. So I suspect China may want to delay if only for that reason. So they've Has been Biden fighting for- said what their stance would be? Sorry, what? Has Biden said what his stance might be for his administration? I don't think there's been a lot of signals on that count. I think overall he's tried to paint a picture of his uh, of himself as being tough on China when he was running for office. So probably he's going to, going to continue a lot of the uh, confrontational policies of the Trump administration. But I suspect the substantive differences will lie in the actual strategizing and execution in terms of the team doing the negotiating, in terms of the approach they take to negotiate, and in terms of their specific objectives. Uh, in terms of what they want from the Chinese, you know, the Trump minute, the Trump team that was negotiating with the China um, was kind of all over the place. They argued with each other a lot. There was a lot of infighting, and uh, it kind of seemed like they were more interested in getting temporary, short-term deals, uh, so that there could be, you know, a political, a perceived political victory painted in domestic American politics. That seemed to be the more important uh, aspect of the talks, rather than actually trying to reach some kind of consensus uh, position. So I suspect the Biden team uh, will probably take a different tack. I suspect that they're going to be more interested in uh, trying to bring the talks to something resembling a conclusive, something resembling a conclusion. Uh, it may be a conclusion that involves renegotiating every couple of years or something to that effect. You know, it may not be an entirely satisfying conclusion, but I don't think there's going to be quite the same open-ended trade war that we've had under the Trump administration. So. Um, a difference in specifics and technicalities rather than a difference in policy, you might say. But yeah, getting back to China's strategy, um, playing for time in the trade talks, that's something they've been doing. They might change that with the Biden administration. Uh, we'll see. But uh, that's been a, playing for time has been a clear part of the negotiations up to this point. Uh, something else they've been doing, I already talked about re-exporting through proxies. Uh, that's advantageous for obvious reasons. Uh, cultivating new markets, kind of a mid that's basically what I was talking about with Africa. Uh, getting new markets makes them less dependent on the U.S. and the West in general, and therefore reduces Western leverage uh, in the trade talks. Uh, the self-sufficiency drive, you know, being able to produce semiconductors and uh, other things, all of that just reduces Western leverage in the negotiations and is hence desirable. Uh, accelerating industrial policy, we mentioned that. Uh, State-owned enterprises. So one of the things China has done with state-owned enterprises is to significantly increase spending. Now, this isn't really something they did specifically in response to the trade war, uh, but because they have respond, but it is something that is part of the trade war. Uh, it's not entirely clear whether they're reforming or not, but there has been more of a push to reform state-owned enterprises to make them more competitive. And uh, any 
time you well by making them more competitive you're making the chinese economy more competitive since state-owned enterprises are very are a very important part of the chinese economy so in that sense making your state-owned enterprises more competitive impacts the trade talks because it uh, makes you less reliant on exports and uh, imports and you know western trade in general that's sort of a rough analogy but uh, state-owned enterprises kind of do play a peripheral role there Let's see. Oh, and you mentioned Biden. So I had some Biden notes here. Uh, less confrontational, but still, quote unquote, competitive, uh, probably more of an emphasis on a multilateral negotiating coalition rather than just bilateral between the United States and China. Obviously, the United States has less overall leverage by itself than it does in a group. So the Biden administration will probably try to uh, initiate some rapprochement with allies like Europe and Japan. And part of that uh, rapprochement will probably involve a common front vis-a-vis -vis China and the negotiations therewith. Uh, they'll probably not be able to cope. You know, this isn't really signals about what they're going to do, but my suspicion is that they're going to struggle to produce a coherent long-term strategy just because it's inherently difficult. Uh, they're probably going to take more of an ad hoc strategy to dealing with supply chain issues and with the trade war in general, you know, there's just trillions of dollars of international trade um, in the world today. So tracking trillions of dollars worth of intricate, complicated supply chains is uh, difficult to put in mildly. So my suspicion is that the Biden administration, the Biden administration is not going to have this huge grand strategy that addresses all aspects of the supply chain. You know, we're probably instead going to see a specific focus on specific areas as they become apparent as vulnerabilities. So a more ad hoc approach to uh, competition with China in that sense. So what that means is that there's going to be points over the next few years where even after the Biden administration, just over the long term, there's going to be incidences where there are vulnerabilities that we did not know about in the supply chain that become apparent, um, maybe dramatically so, or maybe just innocuously so, but uh, I think the U.S. government just does not have the resources to completely parse the entire supply chain for all of those vulnerabilities. So they're going to pop up and probably that's going to be a source of political consternation since people will critic people will criticize whatever administration is in power at time at the time for not seeing it before and not doing something about it before. So that has the potential to be the be fodder for political battles in the future. But that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, long-term strategy that is all-encompassing is unlikely. And another thing we can kind of look forward to is probably more of an American industrial policy. This is kind of a meta trend that I've seen over the past couple years, and especially over the past year, um, just in terms of like doctrine and government policy, not only on the part of the United States, but in part on the part of other developed countries. There's been much more of an embrace uh, and shift towards industrial policy. And it could be that industrial policy becomes one of the defining traits of uh, economic activity over the next, well, in terms of economic policy over the course of the next 10, 20 years, because it does, it does seem that like there's a real political appetite for it, uh, even in the United States, which traditionally has been pretty allergic to it. But the Biden administration, for his part, uh, seems to want to use the trade war as part of an excuse to fund American industrial policy. And the specific thing they're looking at vis-a-vis -vis the trade war is uh, supporting tech innovation in the United States. 
so that the United States can maintain a tech lead over China and therefore maintain a technological edge in terms of its military and in terms of its economic actors. You know, this, this kind of has to do with meta strategy. You know, how do you compete with China given that China has so many, you know, different advantages to bring to bear? And you can't really stop them from developing at all. You know, they're going to develop semiconductors at some point that are decent. You know, they're going to develop a military technology that's better. You know, that's just inevitably going to happen. You just can't really stop that from happening. So given that you can't stop it, how do you address that? So one of the strategies that I've heard is the idea of maintaining a generational tech lead. And this is kind of ambiguous, but the idea is that you just do whatever you can to make sure that there's always some substantive gap technologically between Chinese and American uh, producers, you know, economic or military. So industrial policy could uh, be a big part of that strategy if that were to be embraced. So I'm starting to think about this trade war in terms of a StarCraft match, and it's not a conventional war, which involves boots on the ground and people shooting at each other directly, but there is a clear contest in wrestling of power. And I don't know if you're aware of the overseer's ability in StarCraft. Zerg has this where they can fly in, they get a scout of the opponent's setup, and they can also delay their technology. That kind of sounds like what the strategy is so far, is we want to be teching as fast as possible while also just hassling their tech. We're not shooting them or hurting them, but we're definitely trying to stay ahead and leveraging tactics for that. Yeah, it's a weird kind of competition that the United States has with China now. I mean, if you think about, I tried to make an analogy and kind of semi-succeeded, so take this with a take this for what it's worth. But you can think of World War One as being a, a chess match, you know, being an, like an explicit game of chess, uh, or World War Two for that matter. You know, same deal. So the Cold War then was sort of. A, an abstraction away from that. It wasn't really a chess match. It was more of a competition about uh, where you placed your pieces before the chess match started. You know, there was always this concern about World War III starting. So both sides tried to, they didn't fight each other directly, but they fought over positioning. And they wanted to try to make sure that they had the stronger strategic position, not only geographically, but, you know, technologically, militarily, diplomatically, etc. And so the chess match, you know, World War III never really started, but there was all this competition about uh, where the pieces on the board would be located when the match started. So you can think then of competition between China and the United States as being a further abstraction, kind of a third order, you know, derivative here, where it's not, it's not the chess game itself, and it's not even, you know, positioning pieces on the board before the match starts. It's more debating how the board is designed. You know, there's mm. this sense that there's going to be, there's the potential anyway, for a direct confrontation of some kind, you know, be it military or otherwise, in the future between China and the United States. Wait, and, are you saying that this is all like balance whining? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's probably a better analogy than the one I'm belaboring. Uh, yeah, I think there's some truth to that. But, you know, they're just... They're not competing directly with you. They're not fighting each other and they're not competing for position per se. They're just trying to compete for who has the best advantage for when they start competing. You know, if there were to be an outright cold war between the United States and China, 
which isn't really happening now. Both sides want to make sure they're in as strong a position as they can before it starts. And so that means investing in technology. That means investing in all of these uh, technologies that are going to define the future economically, politically, and militarily. And whoever has the biggest advantage therein is going to have the biggest advantage when that Cold War starts. And whoever has the biggest advantage when that Cold War starts, presumably, will have an advantage in uh, deterring a potential direct conflict later. So we're sort of, you know, three levels of abstraction removed from direct conflict here. And it's just kind of a weird conflict in that sense. You know, we don't expect to have a war. We don't expect to have a Cold War. But we expect that something might happen at some point in the future. So we're going to have this weird, ambiguous, abstract conflict with each other, competition with each other to try to see who can get the most leverage for this potential unknown future conflict at some point in the future. But you're right. You know, I think teching up is probably the better, the better analogy there. That's certainly easier to explain. Well, we talked about that some with regards to just a lot of our conversations about how different wars develop and the map is, it's really unfair. Like the map of earth of, who gets what resources, who has the most defensible position. It's really interesting. And different countries, you can see that they have a large population based on some natural features, like China and India have the Himalayas as a really nice natural barrier where people don't typically march through the Himalayas for battle yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you have different bodies of water that are good for transport and that kind of thing, but it also means that you could be attacked that way. The world is interesting and it's unfair. Devs, please fix the game. It's not very balanced. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, you could say there's such a thing as economic geography. And uh, that's kind of what they're competing over in a similar vein. Whoever can get the best economic geography is going to have an advantage uh, in a potential economic conflict or competition. I think, I guess just to talk a little more about the multilateral approach here. Um, actually, yeah, this kind of ties into something else I wanted to talk about. So I took some notes on semiconductors and some of the inputs that are used in semiconductors. And I think it's kind of uh, useful uh, just to illustrate how much better it would be if the United States took a multilateral approach to the trade war with China. Uh, so one of the important things used to, uh, in, in manufacturing uh, semiconductors is the, you know, the actual design of the semiconductor. That's, that represents intellectual property. And uh, a lot of the designs are produced by Qualcomm, which is an American company. So that by itself kind of gives the United States leverage you know, in the relationship. But there's also uh, advanced lithographic equipment. Uh, this is the capital equipment I was mentioning before, that Dutch producer, ASML. Uh, so that's also an capital equipment is also an important input here. So IP capital equipment, and then the next one is etching gases. So this this is the special kind of gas that's used in the capital equipment that's used to do the actual printing uh, of the semiconductors. And uh, you know, interesting trivia here: the etching gases that are used in the semiconductor industry are monopolized by Japan. And this is something that I learned watching the uh, trade war between Japan and South Korea that broke out last year. 
you know, one of the ways that Japan has tried to punish South Korea is to put export restrictions uh, or, well, more accurately, export limitations on the export of these special gases uh, that Japanese producers monopolize to South Korea. Uh, South Korea has one of the three major semiconductor producers in the world. One of them is Dell, although they're kind of dying, apparently. That's the U.S. entry. And then there's a TSMC, which is the Taiwan company. And then there's a South Korean one. I think it's Samsung. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But the South Korean semiconductor producer has had some difficulties because their supply of this etching gas has been restricted somewhat. But if you were a Chinese semiconductor producer and you're using uh, capital equipment, which of course you are, presumably you would also need this uh, etching gas. And because Japan has a monopoly on it, that gives Japan leverage uh, in the trading relationship. Uh, let's see. So the software obviously used for the lithographic equipment produced by the uh, Dutch producer, ASML, that's US, so that gives the US leverage there. And then uh, rare earths, that kind of gives China leverage since they're the ones uh, producing and monopolizing that. So there are kind of two takeaways from this list of inputs here, uh, two semiconductors. One, uh, between the United States and Japan, they have a lot of leverage on uh, the Chinese semiconductor industry. Uh, you know, the United States in the form of uh, its intellectual property and in terms of its software and the Jap Japanese for their part in terms of the etching gases. And I guess you could throw in the Netherlands in terms of their, uh, a, in terms of their producer here of uh, lithographic equipment. So between, between the three of them, I guess I should say, uh, there's more leverage that can be brought to the bear than just by the United States by itself, uh, which is an argument I think in favor of multilateralism and a multilateral approach to the trading negotiations. Now, the other takeaway here uh, is that there's a kind of balance of terror between the United States and China. You know, China has the capacity to shut off uh, the United States from, well, U.S. producers from their principal supply of rare earths materials, which would have a pretty dramatic impact on, uh, at least in the short to medium term, it would have a dramatic impact on uh, tech producers in the United States. But the United States in turn could retaliate by cutting China off from semiconductors, among other technologies. So I would say the principal reason you haven't seen that happen, you haven't seen one or the other power do that in the trading negotiations, is because there's a kind of mutually assured destruction there. And so that means that, one, it's relatively less likely that there's going to be a collapse in uh, tech production internationally just because of that balance of terror. Uh, but it also illustrates that there's you know room for cooperation. You know, There's a good reason not to do that, basically. I think I had another note here. Where was that? Oh, yeah, Australia. So Australia actually also has leverage over China here. This is something that's become apparent over the course of uh, the little trade spat between Australia and China that's been unfolding uh, recently. I think I have that here in my notes. Yeah, this could be worth going over too. Are we doing okay on time? 2.12, are you okay? Yep. Okay. Doing fine. Let me find that. So the leverage that Australia has is actually iron ore. You know, in general, the mining industry in Australia is one of the economic drivers in Australia. And uh, it's mining, you know, mined stuff. You know, I'm sure there's a technical term there, but, you know, mineral production and exports uh, to China 
are a big part of the mining industry in Australia. And it's one of the biggest aspects of their trading relationship. Now, in general, there's stuff that, all, that China can get from other mining economies. You know, they don't have to exclusively rely on Australia. But one of the biggest things they, uh, one of the items they import the most of uh, from Australia is iron ore. And that's actually a politically sensitive item for China. Because one of the uh, jobs programs that China has implemented in order to try to uh, goose its economy and reduce unemployment and give its producers uh, an advantage is uh, steel production. You know, the Chinese government has massively encouraged investment in steel production. Uh, it's not something they've done recently. In fact, I think they've been discouraging it more recently. But after the 2008 financial crisis, there, there was this Herculean jump in investment in steel production in China. And the result of it was that China produced more steel than every other country in the world combined. It was just this massive glut of steel. And they didn't need all of it. You know, they didn't consume all of it. A lot of it got exported, uh, in effect, dumped. You know, I mean, there's a lot of accusations that get thrown around about dumped goods. Uh, but this was explicitly dumping. You know, they were just making steel for the sake of making steel and then throwing it out onto the international market. Now, of course, a big input into steel is iron ore. And, you know, China produces its fair share, but uh, because they're producing such a prodigious amount of steel, they're having to import some. And most of it is getting imported from Australia. And uh, one of the things I've read is that uh, iron ore is one of the few things, well, not one of the few things, but one of the reasons that uh, China has not put tariffs or other trade restrictions on iron ore from Australia is because uh, they need it. You know, they need it in order to keep that steel production going so that they don't have to lay people off. You know, one of the things the government is afraid of in China is having to deal with unemployment. So they try to do whatever they can, you know, through industrial policy or subsidies or whatever uh, to try to maintain that employment. So Australia has some leverage there in that sense. Uh, not so much leverage in other areas, but uh, certainly in that sense. So that's another argument for multilateralism, you know, between Japanese etching gas, Australian iron ore, Dutch capital equipment and American, uh, you know, intellectual property. There's a lot of leverage that could be brought to bear combined uh, on China that could result in a much better trade deal and a much more satisfactory conclusion of the trade talks. I guess just to touch on Australia again, because since we're just talking broadly about trade at this point, it could be worth kind of looking at uh, some of the ways that China has restricted trade with Australia as sort of punishment, you know, for perceived Australian transgressions. I suspect more perceived than actual, but, you know, I think it could be worth going through the list here just to look at the different ways that China can punish countries. You know, generally the U.S. uses rule of law, has rule of law. You know, they use official mechanisms, legal mechanisms, and what have you to restrict trade. But in China, by contrast, they use sort of more informal mechanisms. And these are all, these all kind of speak to the advantage China has uh, by being not a rule of law nation, you know, rule of man, by, by having a more ambiguous legal system. So some of the things they've done here, uh, on, bar, on barley, this is something that they put tariffs on more pretty early in the trade tiff, uh, they just raised tariffs. That's a very conventional approach to dealing with trade conflict. Uh, on lobsters, though, they did not increase tariffs. Instead, what they did is they increased the time it took to process the, <coughs> process the lobsters. Now, you might not think that matters much, but the thing is they uh, increased the time of processing to the point where the lobsters rotted in storage. 
and that was done on purpose. So you can still buy lobsters from Australia, just don't expect them not to be rotted by the time you get them. So in effect, that's an artificial trade barrier there, what you would call a non-tariff trade barrier. Uh, Timber also was restricted. Uh, There was no tariffs on timber that were implemented. Rather, what they did is restrict the import of timber. They just said, you can't import this. And the justification was pests. I don't know enough about timber to know what pests would even qualify for that. Uh, but it could be totally artificial. You know, this kind of thing is, uh, you know, whether or not pests are a problem is more subjective uh, in a lot of countries. So this is something that can be easily abused uh, in countries that don't have regulatory alignment in their trade agreements. Yeah, we can't buy wood from them. There are bears in that tree. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So on wine... Uh, they implemented tariffs, you know, on the wine, but they also uh, justified them in terms of an anti-dumping investigation. You know, kind of like what I mentioned before, accusations of dumping are very common in uh, trade conflicts. You know, everybody accuses everybody of unfairly subsidizing this industry and to the point where they're underpricing their goods. So one of the things China then has done is taken the ambiguity around what constitutes dumping. Uh, and used that as an excuse to tear up wine as a form of punishment. It's a pretty short list. That's that's kind of all I had in this thing. But these are different examples of, you know, for one, tariffs, but also non-tariff barriers. Uh, I also had in my notes here that they have not yet targeted copper and sugar, which apparently had been reported earlier. So apparently somebody jumped the gun on that in Australian media. China wine versus Australia wine. Who has the best wine? Let's see here. I think I had something else I wanted to touch on. I may not be able to remember what it was, though. Yeah. Oh, the zip tie thing. So I guess this is kind of a bookend here. Um, So the most recent event in the U.S.-China trade war was that the Trump administration... Uh, put tariffs on zip ties from China. And that's not like a really significant event in and of itself, but what was significant is how they justified it. Uh, They actually justified it by citing currency manipulation, which is not what they've been doing. You know, before they'd been justifying it on other grounds, you know, dumping or what have you. But to say that uh, China's a currency manipulator and then to use that as the excuse for tariffs, that's kind of a new thing. And I don't know if that'll stand up in court because China hasn't really been manipulating their currency much the past few years. You know, they don't uh, they don't allow it to float uh, like I'm sure you know the United States would like them to. Uh, they don't have it fixed like it used to be either. You know, they actually do let it uh, trade within a band, and the band floats itself. So they'll let it shift over time, but they won't let it shift very quickly. That's pretty much their policy now. What does this mean? the value floating? Um, Basically, it's just the opposite of fixed. You know, they don't fix the currency or manipulate the currency in any way. You know, floated currencies just trade freely on foreign exchange markets. As opposed to uh, trying to fix the exchange rate between your own currency and other currencies uh, by manipulating the market, generally by buying or your currency or selling other currencies. So wait, no, that's what... (laughs) 
generally by buying your currency in order to increase the value or by selling your currency in order to decrease the value. Uh. So China has something kind of in between where they do interfere with the value, but they do let it increase and decrease a lot over time. They just don't want it like jerking up, you know, 100% or falling 100% in a few days or something like that. But I thought it was just interesting that you could, uh, that, a, that an administration would try to justify tariffs in that way. And it kind of makes me wonder if that isn't a significant precedent that could be important later. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I had on the trade war. So hopefully that's useful to somebody. Thank you for breaking it down for us. I mean, multiple people asked about it before you started with it, so there was interest. Haha, ha, we made you listen to the trade wool stuff. Take that. Yeah, not to get... Uh, I guess since we're talking about China, it's worth kind of mentioning something else here. And this isn't something I read about. But this is something I've kind of been more thinking about. Um, I was thinking about how China could be a substantive threat at some point. Uh, well, more specifically, how Chinese technological development could be a threat at some point. Because the United States government makes lots of dramatic pronouncements about how China is a major threat to the United States and um, how the United States needs to take dramatic action and all this kind of thing. And I don't always find it particularly convincing. You know, I mean, I'm sure, sure there's a competition and sure there's, you know, flashpoints like Taiwan and sure there should be fairness in the economic relationship. But this idea that China is some kind of dire threat seems a little overblown to me. So I've kind of tried to find different ways how Chinese technological development could lead to a point where they could be a threat. And uh, one of the things I tripped over, one of the ideas I had, uh, had to do with some of the announcements that have been coming out of Hong Kong recently. And uh, specifically, one particular announcement about the change in the law. There was a change in the law about how it was illegal to undermine, well, basically, sedition is illegal. You, know, you can't undermine the authority of the government in Hong Kong. And the law is written ambiguously, specifically, so that the government can interpret that very broadly and arrest you if they want. Uh, if you, even if you're not really saying anything that's, should be, that you should be arrested for that's particularly seditious they could still arrest you because the law is written so ambiguously. So the interesting thing about this law is that it was actually written to be universal. Uh, it's not just that if you undermine the government in Hong Kong that you're breaking the law. If you undermine the government of Hong Kong anywhere in the world, technically you have broken this law, hmm. which is a kind of universal jurisdiction which is pretty interesting because I think the only, only a few other courts have done that. I think Spain has done that. They've said that their human rights laws apply everywhere. And then, of course, the International Criminal Court in Europe uh, proclaims de facto universal jurisdiction. So generally, this is done in terms of human rights, you know, trying to uh, allow prosecution of violators of human rights. But in Hong Kong's case, the Chinese government did something interesting. They've actually applied universal ju jurisdiction to authoritarianism. And I don't know that anybody's done that before. So that doesn't necessarily matter since I think most people aren't going to travel to Hong Kong and the ones that do probably know better than to run their mouth about politics, you know, Chinese politics in particular. 
but I think the interesting thing here is what would happen if China's technology became the global standard? Like what if Chinese telecommunications, uh, Chinese software, Chinese media companies became uh, dominant around the world? And more to the point, I would point out that over the course of the next couple decades, technology is only going to become more important to the economy, to to day-to-day life, you know, to just every aspect of society. And what that means then is that we could come to live more and more in a kind of digital reality, you know, what they, what they used to call virtual reality, although that kind of meant something different, but, you know, the digital world is going to increasingly become the world. And as that happens, whoever kind of controls that, you know, controls the infrastructure behind that and controls commerce on those digital platforms is going to have a huge advantage over human life. You know, I mean, how much human interaction now happens through the internet? It's a lot. It's not face to face so much anymore. And you know, how much face to face, how much human interaction has to occur digitally before digital interaction ceases to be the aberration and instead becomes the norm. So, you know, this is, I think this is kind of traditional sci-fi fodder that most people are pretty familiar with. So the point I'm driving at here is that if Chinese tech firms control this stuff or have a lot of influence on it, uh, then that would give the Chinese government a lot more power and ability uh, to exercise universal jurisdiction of their laws if they wish to do so. So you can imagine, say, uh, somebody, I don't know, breaking some law that is illegal in China, but they break it somewhere else, like in the United States or you know, wherever, Europe, what have you. So in that case, a Chinese court could uh, point out the fact that they broke the law and then you know, demand to hold a case, you know, demand that they come to China to, you know, so that they can have the case. And if they don't come, which they probably wouldn't, then they could just declare them guilty. So what the Chinese government could then do is require Chinese tech firms to cut them out or otherwise mitigate their access to uh, the digital world, as it were, you know, digital commerce, digital social media, you know, what have you. And uh, if Chinese tech firms are dominant and, you know, presumably have enough power, they could do that. They could actually punish you, even though you're not in China. And, you know, this is kind of what the United States already does to a degree. You know, it has such broad economic influence that it can punish firms and people in other countries, uh, even though they may not have broken any laws uh, inside the United States. You know, you can look at kind of sanctions to a degree fall into that category. But uh, all of that, I think the point I'm trying to make, though, is that technological development in the future, if Chinese technological development were to get to that point where they were that powerful then the Chinese government and politics would in turn also have greater reach since they could influence those economic actors. So that I think is maybe not the only good argument since you know I'm sure there's more arguments that have been made, but that's the only argument that I've come up with thus far for why Chinese technological development could be a significant threat, not only to the United States, but to the West in general over the long term. You know, not really so much the short term, medium term, but over the long term, that could be a problem. So I think in that sense, in so much as this is an accurate portrayal of a potential threat, I think in that sense, you could better justify uh, competition with China and the need, or at least the perceived need, to restrict the development of China's technological sector. I think that's a better rationale anyway than 
some of the other arguments that have come out of the U.S. government. You know, the U.S. government has tried intermittently to really make the competition between the U.S. and China more democracy versus authoritarianism, uh, just more blandly and explicitly. You know, this is a battle of good versus evil. And if we don't win, then, you know, authoritarians are just going to win everything. And it's kind of a cartoonish Cold War perception, I think, of the competition that doesn't really hold water in the present circumstances. I think they would be better served pointing out the potential future future ramifications of uh, the development of Chinese technology and the evolution of, of the Chinese, of the Sino-American competition, such as it is. So with that said, was there anything, I guess we already kind of, well, was there anything else you thought of while I was ranting and raving that you wanted to talk about besides China and the trade war? Well, I did think about the Hearthstone player who talked about uh, the revolution of our time and stuff, and then he got his prize money taken away. And I'm thinking that that may be a, yeah. a more broad scale problem that could happen where if you basically just criticize China and you're using Chinese apps and stuff, then they can slap you because they have that power. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an excellent example, actually. Yeah, it's um, I don't think it's all that bad right now because I'm, you know, no offense to Hearthstone players, but it's not, you know, the center of the universe exactly. So it's not too big a deal. Shots fired at the Hearthstone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too big a deal that the Chinese government is influencing that, you know. But it's more going to be substantive issues that, uh, you know, if, if they grow more, then yeah, they could, in the same way that they influence that uh, guy playing Hearthstone, they could influence, you know, producers, economic activity generally, you know, politics, what have you. I think we did have some questions. We had at least two left over from last time. So if we have time, we could take a look at those. Go ahead, hit them 230. up. 2.30. Okay. So the first question was, did the approach of Sweden to COVID pay off or change? Early on, they were just going for herd immunity, as I recall. Yeah, I think they've introduced more restrictions since then. But I don't think they've completely reversed course. I think it's still a relatively laissez-faire approach, so to speak, to managing the problem. And there was kind of a big political kerfuffle in Sweden over that. You know, it seemed like uh, people in elderly homes, uh, people in retirement homes specifically, were hit hard, and the government got blamed for that. And numbers have kind of gone up and down. You know, I think they've been hit with the second uh, second upswing, you know, whatever you want to call it, that's occurred recently in Europe. Yeah, I think in general there are more restrictions, but I don't think there's still I don't think they've still fully embraced the idea of like a total shutdown in Sweden. Somebody from Europe would probably know better than me because I haven't been following Sweden's uh, COVID stuff very closely. But I don't think I remember reading that they significantly shut things down. Uh, I think they are still relatively more open. And I'll trust chat. I guess I'll give a late disclaimer. I should I should I normally give it early on. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. Um, what? I know. It's shocking. Oh, no. I'm not an expert in everything I talk on here, probably even most things. So if I ever say anything wrong, biased, or stupid, please do correct me. You know, if I'm wrong, I want to know more than anybody. And I do get a lot out of reading chat, you know, after we do this. 
Uh, I don't read chat while we do this. I probably, I probably should have mentioned that before, uh, but I will read it later. So I, I will see it eventually. So participate, participation in that regard is encouraged. So let's see, that's Sweden. Uh, next question, question from, what is China's official explanation for this virus? Uh, the wet market thing, I think, is theirs. I think they were the originators of that. So the, the idea that there was some people at a wet market who were around some bats, and then it, the virus spread from bats to people. It's not that outlandish. There have been, I think, other viruses that have spread like that, um, from bats to humans, that is. I don't know if it was necessarily at a wet market. but I think technically, though, that is the official explanation from the Chinese government. They've been a little cagey about details. They haven't really been cooperating with the uh, WHO on like investigating it fully or what have you. So I think that's been fodder for any number of conspiracy theories, unfortunately. But uh, to be fair, technically the Chinese government has been not entirely open about the origins of the virus. That doesn't mean it was uh, necessarily engineered in a lab, you know, Stephen King's The Stand style or anything like that. <clears throat> I'm still pretty skeptical about those assertions, but yeah, I, the official explanation, if that's all you want, is the, the wet market bat thing. And then the third question here, what is the new Chinese strategy for economic growth past preparing for the incoming, oh, path slash preparing for the incoming 2030s retirement disaster? I think for a long time, they didn't have any plan for it. I think they were... Uh, mostly just focus on generating economic development at all. Um, I think the problem of demography has become more of a problem in the past. Dealing with it has become more of a priority of the past 10, 20 years, I think. I don't think it was too much of an issue before that because I think it's become more apparent that, uh, I mean, to use the hackneyed phrase that's been bandied about in media endlessly, China is going to get old before it gets rich which is to say that their GDP per capita is not going to uh, increase enough to really pay for all of these people who are going to be elderly and need care. You know, there's going to be more people exiting the economy, needing resources than there are going to be productive members of society uh, producing, you know, putting goods into the society. And so, the you know, size of the countries is different, but isn't Japan sort of dealing with that now? Yes, no. They have the demographic decline in that sense, yes, uh, but they've already gotten rich. Their GDP capita is very high, so they actually do kind of have the resources to deal with the problem. So they're kind of in good stead. Um, that's not going to stop dramatic changes from happening in Japan, and the government is you know, kind of fitfully taking action to deal with it. But you don't really have to. You know, Just as an aside here, uh, if you do have a demographic decline, you don't have to increase immigration. If you want to increase, uh, you know, if you want to maintain economic growth, that's probably a good idea, you know, since demographic growth drives a lot of economic growth. But you can choose to just allow your economy to slightly decrease. It's not going to, well, it will decrease in size. You know, your economy will decrease in overall size, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't inevitably mean that your quality of life is going to get worse. You know, GDP per capita in Japan is not decreasing, even if the economy itself is stagnating at best most of the time. And I think they actually have seen some growth over the past couple of years. You know, 
not not anything too big, but it's there. But uh, I think in Japan, they're not embracing immigration. They have allowed a lot more immigration than they were before, but I don't think you're going to see the kind of mass immigration that you see in like uh, the United States or you know Europe to a lesser degree. And that's not like a great evil. I think economists like to say, you know, you need to, you need immigration to make up for the shortfall in resources. But I think I suspect Japan is going to just uh, try to in, introduce uh, limited immigration to deal with specific problems and otherwise allow the population to fall. I don't think that they're going to push for demographic growth as a specific policy. They are trying to get people to have more babies, but they're not. They haven't been any more successful in that than anybody else. You know, in other words, not at all. <laughs> it's really hard to get people to have babies who don't want to have them. And it seems like people living in modern cities really don't want to have them that much. Anyway, that's a wild ass tangent for you. Um, yeah, China's problem is that they're going to have a huge elderly population, uh, but the younger workers in their society are going to not really be making enough money uh, to substantively pay for their care. And that's going to put a strain on uh, China's healthcare resources. Uh, it's going to make it less likely that uh, there's going to be a social safety net implemented. You might think a communist system like China would have a pretty st strong social safety net, but they actually don't. The government just doesn't have the resources for it. So as a result, uh, when it comes to things like healthcare or unemployment benefits or what have you, you're kind of on your own in China for the most part. So China's economy has started to slow down. It's still growing pretty good. Growth rates are still pretty decent, uh, but the issue right now uh, is that it's not growing fast enough uh, to meet the demographic decline, to meet the demands of the demographic decline. So that's not something they've really hit on until, again, the past 10, 20 years. Now, as for what they're doing about it, uh, I think the most obvious thing they're doing about it is relieving, is uh, alleviating rather some of the restrictions that were part of the one child policy. They haven't gotten rid of it completely, but they have significantly relaxed it. And uh, unfortunately for them, it hasn't had much of an effect. You know, there, there really has not been a dramatic increase in the, the birth rate as a result of that relaxation. Uh, but that is one of the changes in strategies. They want to try to encourage more births. And one of the ways they did that is by uh, relaxing the one child policy. Now, beyond that, I don't think they're looking at immigration yet, although they do have some of that. There is more people buying wives in China, <laughs> mail order wives and whatnot. There's a big uh, gap in the uh, male and female population for you know obvious reasons. They've got they've still got a bit of infanticide in China, so there's uh, more women in China than there are men, or no other way around. There's more men in China than there are women by a pretty significant margin. And uh, the shortage is particularly acute in rural areas. So as a result, there's a lot of men in rural areas who are resorting to uh, importing women, uh, well, importing brides, so to speak, although there is some illegal trafficking as well, unfortunately. So that's a kind of immigration, you could say, in response to demographic decline, although that's not really demographic decline so much as a gender gap, I guess you could say, but uh, immigration in that vein is the only significant immigration that I can think of. I don't think the Chinese government is going out of its way to invite a lot of people from Southeast Asia to work there. Although I have heard some stories of that happening, but I don't think it's really significant yet. So yeah, I think that's pretty much their strategy. Just try to encourage the youth to have more children. 
And that's pretty much it. That's all I can think of, really. So not a lot of strategizing there on the part of the Chinese government. There's just not really a lot they can do, I think, short of just forcing people to have children. Uh, I they think probably the have some similar things to the states where in the U.S. you get tax breaks yeah. if you're married and if you have kids. Yeah, I'm sure they're doing all like the little cutesy nudge things that other societies do, but none of those are particularly effective. In, in general, it all, funder, it all falls under the umbrella of uh, encouraging higher birth rates. But I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to be viable. <clears throat> I think the only real option they have beyond you know, trying to encourage and incentivize birth rates is to just uh, try to grow the economy as much as possible. You know, try to encourage as much economic development as they can so they can squeeze as much uh, GDP per capita in as possible before they hit that middle income trap. What is the middle income trap? Um, that's kind of an, it's sort of like a, it's a phenomena in the data that can be seen where countries that are developing will reach a level of GDP per capita roughly equivalent to middle income status. It's not quite fully developed, but it's a lot better off than poor, you know, poor developing country. And once they reach that level, their economic growth tails off, tails off uh, and their GDP per capita does not significantly increase after that. And nobody really quite knows why that happens, but it's happened to a number of the Asian tiger economies, you know, like Taiwan or South Korea to a lesser degree, and uh, Thailand to a lesser degree, since they're kind of still developing. And there's a question about whether or not it'll happen to China, but basically their GDP per cap hits that level and then it just kind of stops growing a lot, stops growing very much. So they're pretty close to developed. And I think South Korea would probably count as a developed economy at this point, but their GDP per capita is not really equivalent to the GDP per capita you would see in say the United States, Canada, Western Europe, et cetera. And again, nobody quite knows why that stall happens. And so it gets, they've called it the middle income trap as a result. One theory is that countries that get caught here didn't invest enough in uh, human capital, such that they had people who were innovating new technologies, such that they had a growing services sector, you know, that kind of thing. Just more the innovative uh, software, not software, meat. What's that? They had some cutesy word for that. Well, basically, they didn't develop human capital enough to have an innovative, creative services sector style economy which are generally the type of economies that have that Western high level of GDP per cap. But I don't know how true that is because China actually does have that. You know, Japan has a services sector, although it's a little backwards, and South Korea also. Uh, so they, they kind of all have that. It just hasn't taken off quite to the same degree. So I don't know if that's really the reason. I mean, I think I don't think anybody would really seriously argue that China or you know South Korea or Taiwan or what have you could not produce top level human talent, and doesn't you know that they do produce that level of talent, but it just uh, hasn't translated into a breach of that middle income trap level of uh, GDP per capita at least not yet. You know maybe China is the one that proves us wrong here, and they're able to kind of finally do it just by sheer dint of size and scale, but that remains to be seen. But yeah, that's that's sort of a rough summary of what the middle income trap is.
sounds a little bit similar to the topic that I had for my last solo podcast, Trip at 80%. And one of the ideas that's kind of at the floor of that is making further gains beyond the initial gains are typically a lot more difficult. So say you do have a podcast episode or you have some video idea you're working on. Uh, it might start out pretty decent, and with every round of polish, you can improve it. But every round of polish is also higher effort than the previous rounds. Mm -hmm. So for this, like growing an economy initially, you can go pretty fast, but you hit some hills, basically. More difficult points where it's harder to sustain that same level of growth. Yeah. It's a kind of... Uh ratchet effect i guess but for some reason once you hit that level you just can't quite make the ratchet work let's see so that's all the questions we had are we doing okay on 246 how do you feel pretty good you can go however long you're comfortable with um I've had a full week, pretty good week, so I could rest whenever. I did have some more, you know, there's just a lot of uh, things we could do here. We already kind of talked on the, talked about the India Farm Bill. So mm -hmm. I was just going to talk briefly here about economic reforms in general. Uh, India has its farm bills. So that's a, represents a pretty significant liberalization of agriculture there. And that's a big deal because India's economy is still mostly agricultural. At least that's the uh, sector of the economy that employs the largest number of people. So if you can increase farm incomes, you're actually significantly increasing, uh, improving the prospects for the Indian economy. You know, just because there's so many, just because that's such an important part of the economy. So that could... Uh, that could bode very well for India's economy over the next few years if they are able to get the bill passed and get it to work right, which is, you know, never a guarantee, especially in India. The Modi government tends to rush things through a little too quickly, unfortunately. Yeah, the other one was Indonesia. So Indonesia has introduced uh, some new liberalization, new liberal reforms in their economy. And the idea there is that they wanted to, from what I read anyway, they were trying to get some of the economic activity that's being diverted out of China on account of the trade war, if not also COVID. Let me see if I can find that. Some of it just had to do with decentralizing. No, other way, centralizing. It had to do with centralizing regulatory authority away from uh, localities and provinces, you know, before environmental regulations, uh, well, they weren't all set at the local or provincial level, but provinces and localities had relatively more say in how environmental regulations were set and uh, how permits were distributed. But this reform is going to significantly curtail that and put a lot more of that authority in the central government. Uh, the central government's uh, rationale for that is that they want to make it a lot easier to invest in Indonesia by not having, uh, by not requiring businesses to have to navigate so many different localities and provinces when they're trying to get uh, permissions, permits, what have you. So of course, there's been a big environmental backlash accordingly, since Indonesia is a major, Indonesia is a major producer of several, you know, natural resources, and there's a fear that. Uh, 
the Indonesian government is making it a lot easier for uh, firms to come in and extract resources at a much greater rate and in a much more polluting way uh, than they were able to before. Let's see, that was one aspect of the reforms, though. That could be good for Indonesia's economy if it leads to more resource extraction, which I know is not great for the environment, but you know, Indonesia is kind of a poor country, so they could use it especially some of the poorer regions where they would probably be doing the mining. So that could be good for the overall Indonesian economy if they are able to goose uh, mining and other uh, resource extraction. But resource extraction wasn't the only thing. And I think the Indonesian government was really more interested in manufacturing and trying to get more manufacturing firms to try to either relocate or even locate in the first place uh, in the Indonesian market. I think I had a list of things that the bill does to try to encourage that. See, the bill in which the reform, the bill has over a thousand pages and amends 79 existing laws. So it's quite a bit of a, quite a bit of change they're trying to implement here. Uh, part of the gist of it is just weakening regulations and removing red tape. You know, Indonesia has a lot that's accumulated over time. They had kind of more of a state capitalist model of economic development through the uh, Suharto years. And uh, that's through much of the mid 20th century. So there's probably a lot of uh, regulatory problems there that uh, investors encounter. So one of the things they wanna do with the uh, bill is just try to remove and, uh, and or mitigate those. Uh, they also abolished uh, a sectoral minimum wage in favor of minimums set by regional governors. So that's actually a form of decentralization there. But uh, I think the idea there is that it makes it easier to, for specific firms and industries to have a lower minimum wage than others. Uh, well, I guess another way of putting that is allowing uh, localities and provinces to set minimum wage in a way that better reflects the interests of local industry rather than just having a blanket, you know, one size fits all minimum wage. Uh, they're going to reduce severance pay to a maximum of, maximum of 19 months of salary. Uh, that's as opposed to the 32 months it was before. Uh, that's obviously pretty controversial, and that's always a difficult thing to get past pro-labor political interest groups. But uh, they're going to try to make it a little easier to swallow by having the government provide a, an additional six months pay to people who are newly unemployed. So you're not going to have as much severance pay, but uh, the government is going to try to make up to it by providing more unemployment pay and for longer. Uh, let's see, allowable overtime will be increased to a maximum of four hours in one day and 18 hours a week. Uh, and businesses will only be required to give workers one day off a week instead of two. So that speaks for itself. Basically, it allows you to push your workers more. Uh, restrictions on outsourcing have also been reduced. I already talked about that. And relaxing environmental standards. One of the environmental standards they reduced here is uh, only forcing businesses to file an environmental impact analysis if their projects are considered high risk. So basically, if you're building, investing, building or investing something next to a very sensitive site, or uh, probably if you're just a very large corporation, then you'll still have to do the impact assessment. But if you're a small to medium-sized company, you're basically going to get a waiver, which will make things move a lot faster and be a lot cheaper, probably. So just all of those are little things that the government is doing there to try to encourage the manufacturing sector and to encourage manufacturing foreign direct investment.
it may or may not work. I don't know if uh, Indonesia is necessarily competitive enough to attract manufacturers away from other places like Indochina, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, or even Malaysia, Malaysia rather. So they may not be able to make that work. Um, but the fact that they're making the effort at all is encouraging. And even if foreign investors don't come in, uh, it still should encourage uh, indigenous manufacturing. So between uh, the reforms in India and Indonesia, it could be that both of those economies see some growth uh, over the next couple of years on account of these reform efforts. And, you know, I grant it, it's always a cost benefit analysis. You know, I'm not saying that these things are objectively good or bad or that the trade-offs they make are inherently worthwhile. I'm sure there's a lot of pro-labor people who would listen to these things and just be abhorred. Uh, but the issue, my takeaway here is not that it's politically good or bad. My issue here is that uh, the economy could improve. There could be economic growth in these places. And that could have significant knock-on effects. You know, uh, if India and Indonesia improve economically, that improves their leverage vis-a-vis China. And in, terms make, and in turn, makes them less vulnerable to Chinese pressure. It makes them more attractive allies to the West. Uh, it improves the standard of living in Indonesia and India, you know, if they, if indeed economic activity takes up and GDP per capita improves. So, you know, better living conditions is always good, better quality of life is good. And that could also have an impact on the political systems in these countries, since if uh, the economic conditions improve, uh, status quo political forces will, of course, benefit. And uh, in the case of India, that means more conservative populism, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on your point of view. Uh, in Indonesia, it probably means the entrenchment of the uh, current former reformer. He used to be mostly a reformist, but he's kind of been getting in more into the traditionalist uh, political system there, building alliances with status quo, political forces, etc. So he's kind of getting more corrupt-ish. Not explicitly corrupt right now, but he's building networks with people who have vested interests in the status quo. So that's kind of making people suspicious. But that's not necessarily a bad thing either if he's able to get significant improvements. It just means it's going to be difficult to get him out of power once he gets really popular and uh, passes reforms that make it difficult to remove the incumbent. I guess that's getting ahead of myself. He may or may not do that, but we'll see. The point is economic growth has significant repercussions politically, diplomatically, uh, et cetera, you know, to the point where it's worth mentioning and uh, observing and uh, paying attention. All of those are synonyms. It's worth paying attention when economic growth is happening or is predicted to happen because of those effects. That's just kind of my gist there. Oh, there was another scientist assassinated in Iran. I don't know if you heard about that at all. Did you, Nero? I did not. Yeah, it was one of Iran's nuclear scientists, and apparently it was one of their big names. It was one of the guys that was originally responsible for helping start it and run it. He was assassinated uh, on the outskirts of Tehran. And, you know, that's kind of an escalation on the part of Israel, since it's almost definitely Israel. I don't know who else would really be that interested at this point, but the interesting thing about it is not so much that it happened, since there's obviously been a lot of tension between Israel and Iran in terms of uh, their in terms of the Iranian nuclear program. And uh, it's not even the first time the Israelis have assassinated uh, one of their scientists. Uh, again, I can't say for certain that it was Israel that assassinated either of these guys, but I, I mean, it's just kind of assumed by, by, pretty, by pretty much everybody that it was the Israelis that did it. Uh, but the interesting thing, again, isn't that it happened at all. The interesting thing here is how it happened, which is uh, that, well, we don't know. That's kind of the thing. 
the Iranian government has been really cagey about how exactly the assassination happened. You know, the Iranian government obviously has an incentive not to look incompetent. And this kind of look makes them look bad that they were not able to protect this scientist. And uh, they've had they've released a number of statements about how it happened. And all, almost all of them are conflicting. You know, at first they were saying that it was just a gunfire. You know, there were some guys in a truck and they drove up next to the car he was in. And then they just shot into the car and killed him. But then later on, they were saying, no, that wasn't it. Later on, they said it was like a drone or it's like some that something with artificial intelligence, like they weren't even very specific. They just said, oh, yeah, it was like something with artificial intelligence and they used it to kill him. And it was controlled from space. Like there was all kinds of weird shit coming out of the Iranian government trying to explain this away. But there's never really been any solid explanation for how it was done. But hypothetically, it is possible that it was done via a drone that was controlled, well, an autonomous drone, a, a drone that is not controlled by people, but is just controlled autonomously. And it could have been a, a drone that had some kind of machine gun or semi-automatic weapon of some kind firing into the vehicle. So hypothetically, that is possible. And if true, would represent one of the first assassinations uh, with such a drone. Obviously, there's been drone assassinations pretty frequently over the past couple of decades, but I don't know that there's ever been one by a small drone using a gun. Almost all the drone assassinations I've heard of have been by missile flown by a hmm. high-flying autonomous uh, aerial vehicle. But I've also read that it's pretty unlikely that's the case since the technology isn't really there yet. And also the Iranians are probably just covering their ass <laughs> or trying to. What kind of a gun? Are we talking like a handgun or there's like a sniper mounted on this drone? Like what? Just some, Well, they didn't specify. I mean, it, I guess it was kind of inferred that it was like a M16 duct taped to a drone, I guess. You know, basically. <laughs> what the hell? Just kind of a semiotic rifle of some kind. Again, they were pretty cagey about it. But I just thought the prospect mm. of an... In if that did happen, that would be an interesting step forward in the history of warfare. Uh, but I think it's also interesting because it just kind of illustrates just how badly the Iranian government kind of wanted to cover that up. There were some pretty outlandish tales there. Have we talked about Russia at all in a while? It's been a bit. Yeah, I guess I don't have anything to add. I just thought it was worth pointing out that Russia's had kind of a bad year. Or at least the Russian government has. You know, their whole sphere of influence has been causing them trouble. Like uh, Belarus has been, uh, well, the protests in Belarus are ongoing. So there's questions about the uh, whether or not the Lukashenko government will stay in power and just what would replace them. So that's not great mm. for Russia, since obviously they're very close with the government in Belarus. Uh, Kyrgyzstan had an election that was very eventful. I actually took a whole bunch of notes on that that we just never got around to. Uh, basically, the short version is that Kyrgyzstan had an election and then there was just a complete collapse in law and order. There was a, the, the election was disputed and it got to the point where mobs were just uh, going to the parliament and declaring their preferred candidate president. You know, and that was even happening in localities, local authorities, you know, local, uh, what would you call it? Local governments were being overthrown and local parties were putting their people in charge. And it was just chaos for a couple of weeks there in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, eventually everything calmed down. You know, they were able to kind of reestablish the authority of the government and uh, there was some agreement made on who the president would be. But the whole thing just created a lot of instability and did not speak well for 
Kyrgyz politics for that matter, but it was also a headache for Russia. Since Kyrgyzstan is definitely well within their sphere of influence, you know, they have a mutual defense treaty with them. They have a lot of economic ties with them. You know. So there's a, there was some concern, I think, in Moscow about just where it was all leading for a while. Uh, other than that, there was a, the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia as well. I think that wasn't too much of a problem for Russia, but it did represent a little bit of, uh, to a degree, it represented uh, encroachment by Turkey into Russia's sphere of influence, in so much as Russia has strong ties to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. And of course, there's the Ukraine. You know, that's the Ukraine conflict technically has not ended. So that's an ongoing headache for Moscow as well. So all told, oh, and there's also in Russia itself, there was the constitutional changes that the government wanted to get passed by a referendum. And then they just so happened to schedule the referendum during the pandemic. Well, I should, it's the other way around. The pandemic just happened to occur during the scheduled referendum they wanted to have. And the government had to make a difficult choice about whether to postpone it or whether to have it anyway, but then expose the public to the virus. I think ultimately they went with the former. <laughs> I think, that didn't end well. I don't know if the uh, spread of coronavirus in Russia was explicitly due just to the election that was held. I'm sure there was a lot of other factors too, but it didn't help. So all told, Russia has had a rather eventful year. Yeah, I think a lot of us have had an eventful year, or at least a different one than usual. Yeah. It definitely does raise the pressure, so any pre-existing issues that were beneath the surface like we have that covid catalyst that causes them to erupt into a major problem yeah when before they could kind of linger quietly not so quiet now nope let's see so i guess in the time we've got left here would you be more interested in hearing about biden's green plan or about israeli politics how much time you're talking we're past three. Oh, okay never mind <laughs> either of those would take a while but first before we talk about biden's green plan let me talk to you about my time machine that's going to take us back half an hour <laughs> <laughs> there you go chat did say israeli politics please so i think that would be the the priority for next time we could probably hit both though cool yeah sounds good so for a general roadmap of how this month should go, we do have Christmas coming up uh, next week on Friday. So maybe next week on Sunday, we may still be good for an episode if you are, but probably the 27th off if I had to guess. Just for festivities, I may be visiting my family during that time. Gotcha. Yeah, no problem. But as usual, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in for this episode of World Discussion. Thank you, Agent Smith, for being a bouse yeah, and telling us about me. the things that are going on in the world. And Sea of Whiskey for handling questions during this time. Looking forward to doing the next one with you, sir. It's been one heck of a year, and it's always sobering and refreshing and can provide some clarity to have a level-headed conversation about it that isn't just some shouting match. Yeah. Appreciate your candor and your calm, sir. Much appreciated for the opportunity. All right. Well, we will see you all on the next episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. Smith. <laughs> <laughs>